the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast Podcast. It's Friday, November 9th, 2023, and this is the Steak for Breakfast Podcast, episode 290. Make sure you subscribe to the show. It's available across every downloadable podcasting platform. Find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Check out the Steak for Breakfast link tree. They'll take the show's Instagram, our latest Substack, and verified accounts on Twitter, Getter, and True Social. All right, everybody, and welcome to our big Friday edition, Veterans Day edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. I'm Ro. Noah's going to be joining us here in just a minute. Guys, we've got a great slate of guests coming in today. We're going to be sitting down with the official spokeswoman for MAGA Inc., Caroline Levitt will be here. Indiana House Representative Victoria Sparts will be back as well. We're going to sit down with Jeffrey Clark from the Center for Renewing America and have a great discussion with one of our favorites, retired Army Colonel Douglas McGregor. A lot of breaking news. Donald Trump rocked his big rally as part of counter-programming to the Fox News debate in Miami this week. We've got all the highlights. Did you catch any of the GOP debate? We sure didn't, but we've got all the lowlights. We'll deliver them to you best we can. And we'll do a little bit of the Beltway Roundup. But before we get into any of our headlines, let's take it over to the Granite State and change the way you consume your news. Smokey, this is not NOM, this is bowling, there are rules. Today, Junior, America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! All right, everybody, welcome to Steak for Breakfast. I'm Ron in studio alone today. No, we'll be here in a little bit. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back to America's fastest-growing political podcast getting things started today i want to wish all of our veterans happy veterans day can't thank you enough for your service defending our freedoms our liberties and our republic and a happy 248th birthday to the u.s marine corps can't forget about them either getting things started on the show today we're going to be jumping right into it we have the spokeswoman for make america great again inc joining us always excited to be sitting down with the one and only miss caroline levitt thanks for coming back to the show thank you guys for having me appreciate it Oh boy, it's been a busy week. Sure um, has. Our highlight has been, and, and what we're going to be touching on in our first news segment today, is the huge rally that President Trump had down in the Miami area uh, on Wednesday as part of you know counter-programming to the debate, which was kind of laughable. We could touch on that a little bit as well. But, Caroline, we know you're dialed in all this stuff. You saw the president in top form, great endorsements by, uh, obviously, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, you know, Roseanne Barr got things kicked off. Don Jr. was there. It was just a great event. And, and he hit on a lot of the issues in a definite segue towards the general election. You watching mm-hmm. the whole thing unfold in real time, what did you think? Absolutely. Look, there was a tale of, of two stories going on in Miami-Dade County this week. One was the Trump rally, as you mentioned, a star-studded event. Roseanne Barr was there. Sarah Huckabee Sanders introduced and endorsed her former boss and, and President Trump. And of course, President Trump was there with 10, more than 10,000 great patriots uh, in Ron DeSantis's backyard, laying out his plan for the future of America, laying out his many new policy solutions to solve the many crises that we face because of Joe Biden's dis- just disastrous administration on all fronts from our President Trump's focused on fixing on, on our economy, uh, shutting down our southern border, ensuring we have law and order in American cities. He's come out with a great plan to curb American homelessness, which is a rising concern of many Americans that not any other candidate is addressing. 
And then 12 miles north, you had a fake news debate going on with a bunch of bunch of wannabe play pretend candidates who have absolutely no chance in hell at winning the Republican nomination or winning anything, frankly, in the near future. And I, I did tune into the debate a little bit and it was boring. I mean, it's like watching a sports game uh, without keeping score. It's pointless. It's boring. It doesn't matter because none of those candidates have a chance at winning. So it's unfortunate that they are so selfish and have such big egos and they're so beholden to their big class donors that they won't do what's right for our great Republican Party and this country and rally around the people's president and the people's choice for this next election. And that is President Trump. Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, I want to touch on, uh, you know, goes back as far as uh, the Florida Freedom Fest rally or, or speaking event that President Trump headlined uh, just over a week ago as well. You parlay that into the Miami event. There's not only a huge combination of America First's always favorite, you know, House Republicans and senators, obviously the uh, Rick Scott endorsement this week was huge. He rarely, you know, endorses presidents during primary season. But, you know, you have all the Corey Mills, the Byron Donalds, everyone's there. Matt Gates that, uh, you know, always are supporting the president. But then you have that huge delegation of Florida state legislators that have walked away recently and said, you want to know what? Ron DeSantis was a good governor. We endorsed him when this thing started, but we see the way it's going. And the sensible thing to do is to get behind the clear and obvious front runner who's going to eventually be the nominee. And that's President Trump. Exactly. Ron DeSantis's entire cornerstone of his presidential campaign has been that he did great things for Florida. And so he wants to take that to the national level. Well, the people of Florida beg, beg to differ. It, they're supporting President Trump. You mentioned there's a plethora of state legislators that are endorsing Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis. Uh, you also have many members of Congress from the Florida delegation that have endorsed him as well. And then uh, most importantly, the people People of Florida, the great voters of the Sunshine State are backing President Trump. He's beating Ron DeSantis in Florida by more than 40 points right now. In fact, there's been a 31 negative net swing for Ron DeSantis since he launched back in May. He has lost 31 points in his own state. So he's certainly not going to win that state for president. And frankly, if he could run for re-election, I'm not even sure the people there would support him for that because he's shown his true colors that unfortunately he is another bought and paid for politician who is, is beholden to the donors that want to buy our elections, not the great voters who decide our elections. And you saw that on full display in Miami-Dade County this week, which is a overwhelmingly Hispanic American county that is overwhelmingly backing President Trump. And they're backing him because they know that he delivered before on the values that are very close to their hearts. Those values are faith, family, and freedom. And only President Trump can uh, deliver on those again. Oh, and it looks like he's uh, primed to do so. As If you listen to any of his campaign events, the uh, way Agenda 47 has evolved since his first term is definitely looks like the future is bright. And if you can't you know, if you're in like the small demographic of people who just think the country's too far gone to get turned around quick, it seems like President Trump and, and a lot of the people who are looking to get involved on day one have a lot of comprehensive plans as part of Agenda 47 to make that happen. So now let's touch on the debate a little bit. I didn't see any real highlights. There were some nasty back and forths between people like, you know, Chris Christie and everybody, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. But, you know, when it comes to talking points, I think they went almost 80 minutes into the debate before they talked about anything to do with the United States. They wanted to know like which candidates were pro going to war with everyone. Uh, they didn't really have any interest in the border. And when the candidates weren't answering the questions and just using like regurgitated, you know, 
Trump era talking points, they were bickering with each other. I didn't really see anything outside of that. I don't see in my mind either a, a potential vice president candidate on there as well. Although some people, you know, keep bringing up Nikki Haley's name. It seems like President Trump's sitting there pretty hard on the campaign trail right now with her bird brain nickname. But, you know, the, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, is that I don't know how much longer the RNC and the establishment GOP can continue to try and fool the American people. Just over 5 million people watched in the major demographic uh, of the debate on Wednesday night. And, you know, historically it's around 15 million plus it just spells like a recipe for disaster the longer they try to prolong this process and not get on board and behind President Trump. Absolutely. It's really a shame that we're seeing this primary uh, continue when there is a nominee who is 50 points ahead of the rest of the field. And you watch those candidates debate and bicker back and forth, and it's so pathetic. And all they're doing is wasting time. But most importantly, they're wasting resources hard-earned resources from donors across the country that could be going towards facing our inevitable opponent, Joe Biden. We're two months away from the Iowa caucuses. Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And so it's very important that we do start to expose Joe Biden's corruption, expose the horrendous consequences of his policies, and ensure that independents and Hispanic Americans and African Americans and women recognize that this is the last chance. This election is the last hope to save our republic as we know it. And if you want to do that for your children and your grandchildren, then you have to vote for President Trump. But these candidates are wasting time and they're wasting money. And every dollar that they spend is a dollar being diverted away from that message that we could be taking against Joe Biden and the Democrats who are fundamentally destroying our country. And it's not just folks like myself and other Trump surrogates who are, you know, of course, supportive of the president who are saying this. It's Americans, too. You saw you you mentioned the ratings of the debates. Mm-hmm. They've been they've never been lower. People aren't tuning in because they know this race is a lock for President Trump. And they would like to see, especially Republicans would like to see time and money being spent against the worst president in history. And in fact, Bernie Marcus, who is the the founder of Home Depot, of course, he came out this week and he said that uh, these debates are a waste of time. And I like the way he put it because he essentially said, you know, I know it's unprecedented to basically stop a primary and all say that we have a a nominee, you know, but we're in an unprecedented time. We are in a crisis level state of our nation. And it's very important that we begin to look to take the fight to Joe Biden and ensure that he cannot have another four years in the White House. No, that's the thing. You know, all of these people, uh, they want to get up on the debate stage and out on the fake campaign trails because all they're doing is wasting a lot of money that could be directed towards fighting the Democrats and Joe Biden in the general election, et cetera. And, you know, everybody wanted to be out there virtue signaling on the debate stage the other night talking about we cannot continue to embrace a culture of losing. However, they are all vying for a second place finish at the very best and miles behind President Trump, which essentially is embracing losing. And I think until, you know, we continue to, you know, we saw it in the House of Representatives a little bit this year, decouple ourselves from the culture of just bending the knee to the establishment, then we'll have to see where this goes. Caroline, we're obviously going to be live linking uh, the MAGA Inc. pack in our show description today. But for anybody that wants to check you guys and them out on social media, where are we finding you? 
please, you can go to magapack.com. You can go to our War Room account on Twitter and Truth Social, which is MAGA Inc. War Room. And then you can find me personally at K Levitt, L-E-A-V-I-T-T-N-H. I'm on Twitter, Truth Social, Instagram, Facebook. I run all the accounts myself and love hearing from great patriots across the country. Thank you guys for having me. You're the best. No, you're the best, especially when you come and get our show started on this big Friday edition of Steak for Breakfast. This is the official spokeswoman for Make America Great Again, Inc., Miss Caroline Levitt. Thanks for coming on the show, and have a great weekend. You too. God bless. Asking them next week to, um, to be able to authorize and vote affirmatively as we name a street after you, Donald Trump Way. But I want to say right now, Aren't we all tired of the deep state bullshit? I can't hear you. I want you to say it louder. Aren't we all fed up with the deep state bullshit? The truth is, it's not even a question anymore between right and left. It is normal versus crazy, and the left is doubling down on crazy. We've got out-of-control inflation, violent crime, an open border, a rising China. Biden and the left have failed over and over again, and they know it, and you know it, and it is time for a change. That is why tonight I am so proud to endorse my former boss, my friend, and everybody's favorite president, Donald J. Trump. All right, jumping into the news portion of our show on this big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast, I'm still Roan, joined remotely today by Noah. I promised he'd be here. He's here. Yo. What's going on, my man? We're, we're getting ready to, uh, as you've heard, the, the brilliant sounds and sights from the Trump rally that happened on Wednesday as part of counter-programming. To I the, also am tired of deep state bullshit. <laughs> to the Republican debate, which was an absolute disaster. Uh, we'll be touching on that briefly in our second news segment. But we're going to open up with the Trump rally today because it was bigly. We all saw Mayor Bobo down there in, in Miami present Donald Trump with uh, something he's taken to the board there. He's going to be naming a street after the 45th president. Obviously, we saw the, I guess you could call it electric sounds of none other than Miss Roseanne Barr, who opened up for the 45th president as well. Don Jr. spoke and then Introducing Donald Trump was former press secretary and current Arkansas governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Noah, how big is it, you know, as Donald Trump continues to just rack up the points here to get an endorsement from someone as big in the MAGA movement as Governor Sanders? Well, I mean, I think everybody in the MAGA movement should be dropping their full endorsement on him 100% regardless, but that is pretty giant. Yeah, she uh, came out very strong. She told a, a very touching story. I was watching it in real time, getting a little emotional about how, you know, on Christmas back in 2018, they got the call at like 5 o'clock in the morning that they needed to be all down to the airport within a certain amount of time. They couldn't tell their family or anybody where they were going. And then obviously it led to that iconic Donald Trump surprising all the troops uh, for dinner in, in still a big war zone in Iraq at the time. So 
it was great to kind of hear those stories, rehash a couple of great memories that she had with the 45th president, and then, of course, lend her endorsement, which uh, is just another one, you know, stacked up. You, you talk about Senator Rick Scott, who came in with an endorsement, something he usually doesn't do in presidential primaries late last week. You parlay that into Ben Carson's, who came just a week before now, Governor Sanders, and uh, even... As Caroline Levitt mentioned in our show open today, Bernie Marcus, the founder of Home Depot, who, you know, maybe as early as six months ago said, hey, listen, I'm kind of staying out of this primary season. I want to see how it shakes down. He said, listen, you got to look at the writing on the wall and Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. Therefore, he's getting my endorsement. And usually with come with that is uh, the good kind of Bernie Bucks. Home Depot turns out to be based, not home base. I like it. Um, yeah, it, it's it's very interesting, you know, the, the way that this has kind of played out and to see how strong President Trump is looking right now. We're going to go over some of the highlights from the rally in Hillelea, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami, home of one of the largest swap meets on the face of the earth as well. And I got to get to that one. Hey, that place was packed. I know there was. I like a good swap meet. Dude, the people from Ron DeSantis's always back down pack were like photoshopping photos and pictures of like the bleacher stands hours before behind president Trump while he was talking in like a current picture when it was absolutely packed. And, you know, as soon as the Trump team saw that online and, and people who were in the audience, you got those 360 panoramic views. You got Dan Scavino flying the drone overhead and you couldn't absolutely debate on any way, shape or form, much less on the debate stage that was happening just 12 miles away in Miami with the rest. They were, they were legitimately altering photos. Yes. Yes. And that's his actual team. Yeah. The not whole, like just some mouth breathing hot pocket retard in the basement. Like that's his team. Well, it's the, well, it might be the same thing. Yeah. The hot pocket eating mouth breathing retards who live in the basement, who work for the never back down. Yeah. There you go. So <laughs> no, but like for real, like if you're going to actually 100% falsify an image like that, that's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty over the top. The overflow line at this Trump rally was 10 times bigger than anything I've ever seen Ron DeSantis speak before. And the, to- the toilet line. Yeah. Well, there was probably more toilets there, more porta potties than there were people in attendance for Ron DeSantis's weak milk. Was toast. the swap meet actually still open? No. His Kim <laughs> you Ren- see Donald, Donald Trump walking around, like picking up trinkets and looking at him. That'd be amazing. Well, that's the thing just about how much n- nobody cares about any of this. It's like you get the governor of Iowa who everybody knows is, figuratively speaking, in bed with the DeSantis team, knowing that if he ever won the nomination, he would be, you know, picking her to be his vice president. But giving her endorsement last week, it's the first primary state in the country. It's a big place that, you know, it's usually up for grabs. Donald Trump did not win Iowa in in 2016. So it's one of those things where you see how much that didn't even make a dent. And then everybody's talking through the weekend about the Rick Scott and, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders endorsement. So again, Donald Trump steals the thunder lightning in a bottle. He was quick to uh, talk about what's coming to an end. As soon as he takes the oath of office in 2025, let's hear it. But we're here tonight to declare that crooked Joe Biden's banana Republic ends on November 5th, 2024. It ends. As you know, Biden and the radical left Democrats claim to be defending democracy. He's always talking about democracy. He doesn't know what the word means. He can't define it. (laughs) Define it for us, Joe. Joe, what does MAGA stand for, Joe? Tell me. I don't know. I don't know. 
We'll ask him that during a debate. What does MAGA stand for? I don't know. But like power-hungry regimes all over the world, just because they put the word democratic in their name does not make it true. Mm, that's, that's a pretty powerful statement right there. Just because, yeah. they, just, just because they put the word democratic or democracy in, in front of a statement they make, it doesn't necessarily make it true. I'm still kind of bummed he didn't adopt my uh, banana Republicans term. You know, I did I did send it up to the Trump team. They liked it. Uh, Eli Crane used it in his last two interviews with us. So nice. at least he's holding strong. We love the congressman out of Arizona. But, uh, you know, and, and you want to talk about who who was watching what on Wednesday night, Noah. So we already talked about the abysmal numbers for the RNC debate. Last time it was at $9 million, which was $4 million less than the the first one, which was at $13 million, which historically was about $5 million short of the usual viewership. What do you think the uh, the power demographic for the 18 to, to 50 was for this RNC debate, the third one um, that happened on Wednesday while President Trump was holding a rally? The, the, the power demographic? Yeah, that 18 to 45. Oh, well, let's see. Probably pretty good, right? Five million. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. It, it was the worst ever. But I mean, these numbers have been presented to some of the absolute bigs in the international donor class, the the billionaire class. There, Ken Griffin issued a statement today, and uh, you know, one of the men who financially and I guess to save the democracy wise pushed Ron DeSantis into this primary has finally admitted that Donald Trump cannot be stopped. So it was pretty huge to hear Ken Griffin say that this morning on the heels of the Bernie Marcus endorsement. I hate to say it, but the only way that they can stop is if they just, if they can stop there, the only way they're going to stop him is if they just completely pull out all the stops and just, I mean, they're already, they've already 100% pulled out all the stops, but I mean like criminally, like, I think the only thing shots at the guy, that's the only, that's the only way they're going to stop him. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people who, are in and around president Trump on a, on a regular basis recently. And, you know, one of the things that they fear the most that's going to, you know, be a little gum in the works is the January 6th trial, the Washington DC one. You've already seen the Manhattan civil case fall apart. They've asked for a motion to dismiss today. You've had, um, Elise Stefanik, the, you know, Republican chair, send a nasty letter over to judge transformer up there in New York and, and say that the way that he's conducted Edge, Edgetron. Yeah, yeah. The way that he's conducted himself in his courtroom and, and the partisan bias that him and his family have shown on social media and, and in directly engaging the president while he was on the stand is absolutely an embarrassment to justice. And then it's been such a slow creep of people just not even being afraid. Like, judges are supposed to be unbiased like the judge like you're literally supposed to be like the the scales of justice with the blindfold like they're everybody's peeking like it, it's it's dirty yeah and it's been such a slow creep to that over the last like you know decade of just it used to be that people were like well you know i'm not going to comment about that it's not my not my job to to talk about what my politics are and now it's just like they might as well be wearing like NASCAR jersey with patches of whatever woke fucking movement on their on their on their robe. Dark Brandon t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, dark Brandon t-shirts. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's funny that you brought that up, Noah, because President Trump actually touched on that. It's our next clip here talking about how hard this has been for his family, but how much resolve they continue to have in fighting for the American people. Let's hear it. Every day since our two 
1,016 victory. That was some year. The sick political class we defeated has been trying to scratch and claw their way back into total control over our lives. They are working so hard. It's actually all they're good at. They're bad at policy. They're bad at everything, but they're only good at that. And they're really great at cheating in elections, but we're not going to let that happen. <laughs> They've put you, me, my family, and our country through hell. But in the end, they will fail and we will win because we will never stop fighting to save the America we love. You could hear how loud the crowd is there. And, uh, you know, when he turns around to acknowledge the people who are in the grandstands behind him and, and walks away from the microphone, it's going to get twice as loud as it was before when they thought he was just going to jump right back into the speech. And that's with and that's with people not being afraid to show up to those things. Like, there's a lot of people that are afraid to show up to anything because of what happened on January 6th. But these people are just like, I'm going, fuck it, I don't give a shit. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's getting to a point you know, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to sitting down with uh, Jeffrey Clark again at the end of this segment. We're going to be touching on stuff like that because I, I think that's a really good point you make, Noah. It's just the ability to wear it on your sleeve has become something that our federal law enforcement and the Department of Justice has weaponized against the American people. Uh, the, you know, they're, they're locking people up for January 6th related crimes just for posting about stuff on social media 10 states away from Virginia. And, and it's just gotten so out of control that you can't really fathom what could happen when you put yourself at risk. I mean, I'm sure there's feds all over those Trump rallies, and I'm not talking about the Secret Service that are protecting him. I'm talking about January 6th style, those confidential human sources and, and fake actors in the crowds. But, you know, the, the Trump rallies aren't going to ever get violent, but if you don't think they're making lists and checking it twice, it's it's something that you definitely have to take into consideration when you get out to these things. Yeah, when you when you talk about people now seemingly you know being more comfortable with wearing their support for president trump on their sleeve it's gotten to the point where that's just how it's going to be it's gotten so bad that people are just like you know what fuck all these people i don't give a shit i'm putting the sign in my yard i'm gonna wear the hat i, I was watching this uh, comedian and he was talking about like people that wear like the trump hats in in public and he's uh -huh. just like that guy chose violence like you know exactly what's gonna happen you wear that shit in public like it's pretty good i remember the curb your enthusiasm episode where larry davis <laughs> he cuts off the biker the biker like pulls up next to his prius and he's cursing what the and fuck he throws the hat on I'm gonna like, oh, sorry, brother. yeah he's like oh okay keep fighting <laughs> and it's just like hilarious but yeah no i mean you make a good point there and and the one thing is you know you have to just listen we're at a time right now where you got to make a decision and right now it seems like, you know, this is entering the final stages of the last battle, like President Trump always says. I definitely think that was one of the, you know, underlying undertones of this entire rally. Uh, pointing out a lot of great friends there, obviously, the typicals in the Florida delegation. Kudos over to Matt Gates and Corey Mills and Byron Donalds. We love them. He also, you know, threw a couple kudos out to the large delegation of state legislators that have originally endorsed Ron DeSantis and then decided to walk away and, and endorse President Trump recently. He called every single one of them out by name. 
And uh, nice. even even through kudos to one of my favorites, uh, New York Yankees pitcher Nestor Cortez. They call him the Hillalea Kid, according to President Trump. He was actually in attendance and one of those brave people who play professional sports and will you know go to the front row of a Trump rally in the VIP section wear a MAGA hat. I was pretty surprised. Nice. Is that how it's pronounced? I always thought it was Hialeah. I don't know. Hey, I'm not up on my Indian tribes right now. I got yeah. I got Seminoles down as correct pronunciation <laughs> because I like Florida State, but that's about it. All right. Yeah. Don't tell Tommy Tuberville that either. <laughs> Obviously, President Trump, as part of his counter-programming to the RNC debate, which he has said, don't say that, it wasn't counter-programming, it was just a rally. He's was, not a fat pig. Was going to absolutely dunk on them while at the rally down in Miami, just 12 miles away on Wednesday night. Let's hear him. So therefore, do you think we did the right thing by not participating? Somebody said, oh, some one of the dumber ones. He doesn't have the courage to stand up. Well, listen, I'm standing in front of tens of thousands of people right now, and it's on television. That's a hell of a lot harder to do than a debate. That's a hell of a lot harder. Man, those spontaneous USA chants broke out throughout the entirety of the over 90 minutes that he spoke for. And uh, it was a raucous crowd deep in the heart of supposedly DeSantis. (laughs) Yeah, the the free state of Florida. You know, and and you see these polls that come out this week. There were a lot of good ones for President Trump, as usual. You have the National Republican primary poll. This came out. On Monday, this is from TIPP, Trump 60%, DeSantis even at 13, Ramaswamy 7, Haley 5, Christie 2, Scott 2, Burgum 1. Hmm. You also had a big swing state poll that came out this week as well. It, it kind of follows with the one that came out Christy last week. Christie must be excited, ecstatic that he's beating somebody. The only thing he's beating is his heart into a heart attack. <laughs> Don't call him. The a only fat thing he's beating is the high score of cholesterol. Yeah, don't call him a fat pig either. <laughs> no, he's not a fat pig. So Emerson College came out with a swing state uh, poll this week. This also came out on this came out on Wednesday. Georgia forty nine forty one Trump over Biden. This is head to head presidential. Pennsylvania Trump forty nine forty five over Biden. Nevada Trump forty seven forty four over Joe Biden. Arizona Trump forty six Biden forty four. Wisconsin Trump and Biden tied at forty five. And then Michigan, one of those all-important first five states, Joe Biden 45, President Trump 43. So, mm. again, five out of six, um, Joe Biden is not winning, one he is tied. And uh just doesn't doesn't look good for the big guy. You know, it's it's getting to a point, and we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit in our next news segment. I don't want to kind of get ahead of ourselves because uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, one of the very few highlights of the debate was, uh, you know, what he said about smoking people. He was smoking people at that debate. That was good. Yeah, Chris LaCivita, who's a great guest and great friend of the show, put out a statement following Trump's rally down in Florida. I'm going to read it right now. Unless you're a fan of cheap knockoffs or out-of-tune tribute bands, tonight's GOP debate was a complete waste of time and money. President Donald J. Trump leads the Republican primary by 50 points, period. He is crushing crooked Joe Biden in national polling as well as five of six of the biggest swing states. Voters want a return to the country we had just three short years ago before Biden and the radical left began to destroy it, 
and voters believe that President Trump is the only one who can make this a reality. I'm going to try not to laugh. (laughs) Simply put, voters want to make America great again. Rob DeSanctimonious (laughs) and Nikki Birdbrain Haley need to get serious about the rapidly eroding political futures that they have. DeSanctis is losing in his home state by 39 points and has until December 12th to remove his name from the ballot or suffer one of the biggest home state humiliations in the history of our republic. Birdbrain's political ceiling is also so low she needs to duck in order to avoid hitting her head. They are going nowhere. And at this point, every dollar sent to their campaigns or their super PACs may as well be going directly to Joe Biden. (laughs) Donald J. Trump is going to be the next president of the United States, and if it's up to DeSanctis and Haley to determine whether or not they want a political future or not. End of message. Yeah. So I guess you could tell how good the uh, RNC debate went, and there's a little bit of preview there. Sticking in this thread, though, President Trump was getting ready to wrap it up. But before he did, he was going to hit Joe Biden a couple times. I've got two clips. Let's hear him. We have some incredible businessmen and businesswomen with us tonight. And some of them are over 80 years old and they're just as sharp. I would say a couple of them are sharper now than they were 15 years ago. I don't remember them being that sharp. But we have people and he's not, you know, they like to say that. They like to say that because they think, you know, they're trying to say, well, Trump maybe isn't that far behind. I think I'm really far behind. I think I'm really way far. But his problem is not age. They keep saying that. His problem is that he's grossly incompetent. And by the way, 25 years ago, he was incompetent, too. He had the worst foreign policy judgment of any human being. And the Secretary of State said it. The Secretary of Defense said it. You know, it's funny. I'm pretty sure when Colonel McGregor comes in the show later, he'll be saying it, too. Mm -hmm. The president would go on to criticize Joe Biden for doing things the wrong way and then obviously allude to the fact that you could only do it one way, and that's properly. Let's hear it. In times like these, you can't afford to have a president who wants to be politically correct. We have to do things properly. We cannot have an administration that takes foreign policy advice from Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib. Can't do that. Can't do that. AOC plus three, right? AOC plus three. That's what they call them. Maybe you've heard of them. Mm. And maybe you've heard of the great podcast you're listening to today. If you're enjoying it, make sure you're subscribed. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Find Steak for Breakfast. Follow the show. Make sure it's downloading on your electronic device. Helps us out big time. Apple Top 100. Massages the algorithm. Puts us in the suggestions. Also, across social media, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Find Steak for Breakfast accounts. Hit the follow button. And then the notification bell. As a reminder, we're getting ready to jump in with Jeff Clark in just a moment. But before we do, we're going to play the always staple on steak for breakfast. That is the Trump closeout from the rally in Miami this week. Let's hear it. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. And together, we will make America powerful again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. 
We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. Thank you, Florida. God bless you all. God bless you all. Thank you, Florida. And, of course, he would be out with the iconic dances that we have grown accustomed to in watching Trump rallies for all these years. Noah, rate it. it was, I thought it was good, as close to a 9 as you can get. Final form Trump will be in the year of the presidential election only. I cannot give him a 10. But you're talking about guest list. You're talking about speech content. You're talking about crowd energy and size. And then you're talking about President Trump's delivery. What do you think? 8.5 minimum. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where where right now it seems like everything is working out for President Trump. We've we've obviously had some developments in some of his cases. Obviously, the, the, I'm referring to the motion to dismiss that that came in this week from the Trump team after some you know horrible back and forth between the judge and and the attorneys that were questioning Eric and Ivana, Don Jr. and of course the 45th president. You also see down in Florida the the documents case. It looks like not the whole case yet, but some of the depositions Judge Cannon has pushed dates on where it looks like she's not looking to interfere with any of the first five primary states. In addition, there are rumblings that she might just be have had enough and is ready to throw that whole case out. So again, I think at some point you talk about the 14th amendment cases, they're all trash. The New York one, the narrative's falling apart. The Georgia one, I mean, there was pictures of topless Letitia James circulating on social media yesterday. So you could talk about the seriousness level of that one. Like real ones. Yeah. I don't think anybody wants to see that. No. They're like udders. <laughs> I have uttered this bread. Can you milk me? Yeah, there you go. But but the thing is, I, I think at some point into the final months before the presidential election, all eyes will be on that January 6th case. And then I, I, I feel like if that's the only one that they can make stick, it's going to be up to the Washington, D.C. appellate before the Supreme Court to kind of you know, take care of Donald Trump and, and uphold the laws. He's already been judged by Congress and acquitted of anything to do with that. So we're going to continue to track the president as we always do on the show. We'll bring you the highlights from all of his speaking events as we do every week as well. But uh, we're getting ready to jump in with Jeff Clark right now. Before we do that, let's hear from one of our partners. It's an unpleasant truth that 42% of Americans are obese and 79% of Americans are overweight. That's practically one in every two Americans living day to day with every minute counting down to the end of an unhealthy existence. It's time to change that and make Americans healthy again. You've probably heard about weight loss injections that can help you get back into that right mindset and help curb those cravings so you can focus on what's really important. New Hope Wellness has changed thousands of lives and maybe it can change yours too. They are American family owned and operated with the goal of saving lives. With convenient telehealth options, you can speak to a licensed professional from the comfort of your own home, and all products are delivered discreetly to your front door. Visit newhopewellness.com forward slash state and start your journey to a better you. That's newhopewellness.com forward slash state to get your free consultation and 100 bucks off your first order. 1-800-527-2150. Make America healthy again. All right, joining us next on the show today, he's the former 
U.S. Department of Justice double assistant attorney general. That's the two-time defending. He also does a lot of great work as a senior federal at the Center for Renewing America. Mr. Jeff Clark, thanks for coming back on the show. I'm glad to be here. Uh, You know, you guys do great work, and uh, we were just uh, free chatting for a second about the Center for Renewing America, and uh, obviously we think we're doing good work, and I'd urge uh, your viewers and listeners to uh, to look for us at AmericaRenewing.com. We've got a lot of good fellows and good work we do. You know, we're going to be live linking it in the show description today, Jeff, but I do want to stay in that thread real quick. You guys do a hell of a job over there. There's so many great people from your, you know, center that come over on the show. Steve Friends on every month. Uh, Kingsley Cortez comes on. Kingsley Wilson now comes on whenever she can. Cash Patel is a great friend of the show. He's on at least twice a month, et cetera. We've even had Ken Cuccinelli in, in the midst of all this, you know, primary debate, and we're a very America first show to have him come on and talk about all of the good stuff that he did while in the Department of Homeland Security and what securing our borders in the future looks like we want to be able to you know continue to give and extend that platform you guys got going on there but why don't you just tell our listenership we always introduce people as as being members or fellows and 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 directly connected to the center but just a little bit about what you guys are doing now heading into this all important 2024 election season well we uh uh you know are uh, a c3 the center for renewing america so we focus on policy ideas and, and work and uh, you know, we each have our areas of expertise. Obviously, uh, Cash Patel, as one example, has an expertise in intelligence, uh, and so we, you know, have a project to work on issues related to the Weaponization Committee. Uh, I work on legal issues. Obviously, my background is as a lawyer uh, predominantly, and uh, you know, both in private practice and then at the Justice Department and the Trump administration. I'd also been in the Bush administration. Yep. So, uh, you know. One of the uh, the things that uh, I'd recently appeared about was this uh, SEC disclosure rule about uh, you know climate uh, issues and climate emissions that uh, the Biden SEC through Gary Gensler, the chairman, is trying to jam down on Americans and actually impose on them through a form of extortion. He gave uh, a speech recently where he said, "Look, uh, you know, you guys over at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which." former client of mine, uh, although I think over time it's become more and more elitist in its outlook as opposed to looking out for ordinary American businesses. You know, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, don't sue us because if (laughs) you uh, challenge our uh, climate rule, all you're going to do if you bring it down is open yourselves up if you're a multinational corporation to the stricter climate disclosure rules in the European Union. So, you know, it's great to know that the Biden SEC and the EU are working hand in glove to make sure that, uh, you know, they hammer American businesses into coming into line, especially for, you know, for, for no real purpose. I mean, the, the, the whole issue is overblown. The science has been distorted. The data is being distorted increasingly over time. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a it's a big uh, bugaboo for the left that they get these rules in place that they drive toward what they call net zero. Uh, but I don't think the American people really want any of that. And I think they definitely see that it destroys their incomes and their jobs. Yeah, that's exactly the way it negatively, you know, hurts the American people. And in contrast to what the government should be doing, which there's a lot of DEI, there's a lot of virtue hiring and singling right now. And it seems like there's just not a lot of work getting done every time we have these committees or subcommittees, whether it be in the House of Representatives or the Senate. It's receipts after it used to be. 
a lot more of like a, a basketball posterization. You would bring in this agency head. You'd find like the one thing you didn't like about him, and every single person on the committee would dunk on him. But now it's like numbers and data and just stuff that's not getting done for this country. How big of a deal is that going through an entire four-year term of a president and just kind of putting everything on cruise control as long as it looks good to the radical left? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the Biden administration is doing that because they have their own in-house radicals and believers in, you know, DEI, uh, CRT, wokeism, uh, you know, all of these uh, ESG climate kinds of things. And look, you know, the, the chickens are coming home to roost. I hope that especially in time for the 2024 presidential election, more people wake up. Right. But, you know, we have radical Hamas sympathizers uh, yeah. and other Palestinian group sympathizers uh, or or their dupes who, you know, uh, will can be ginned up at a moment's notice, like flooding into the lobby of BlackRock. Right. And there's no, you know, uh, corporate entity, essentially, you know, under Larry Fink, that's tried more to impose ESG on the U.S. economy than than BlackRock. Right. But, uh, you know, maybe the fact that, uh, you know, this all of this so-called so diversity stuff and the wokeism that they've promoted in the universities and in the corporations, you know, it's coming uh potentially to, to bite them, right? No one, you know, in the groups of people who invaded their lobby seemed to say to themselves, well, you know, BlackRock's a friend. You know, we have, uh, you know, radical uh, folks, uh, you know, Palestinian organizers and rabble rousers. They're talking about arresting uh, people in Congress. Yep. They're talking about arresting and shutting down people in the media. I don't think your podcast would last very long. So, uh, you know, it's just it's it's shocking and it's very it's entirely foreseeable that BlackRock promoting these things would lead to a boomerang effect. But I think some of these elitists are just totally out to lunch. They don't see that boomerang effect. Maybe again with, you know, what's happening as a result of the, uh, you know, the the terroristic episode on October 7th and then the the uh, backlash on that and the you know, uh, coming to our shores of protests about that on the other side, maybe some people will wake up. We, we can at least hope and pray for that. No, we certainly can. And we do have a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. We already kind of mentioned it. It's heading into the election season next year. Jeff, how important do you think legislatively and all the stuff that you guys are writing on potential policies are going to be implemented in, let's just say, a, a Republican-controlled House, Senate, and Oval Office in 2025? Is it important for us to not only retain power in the House of Representatives, but, you know, with Joe Manchin saying he's not running for re-election yesterday and, and Governor Justice looking to be a surefire winner there, he's nearly, you know, getting close to 75% of the in the polls over there in West Virginia – it looks like we're starting off with a 50-50 map, which if you have a Republican win the White House, you already have the majority in the Senate. How important is it for us, you know, just to be able to get this country back on track and down to ground zero, where we could start to literally make America great again, again? Uh, do we have to be, as far as being, you know, involved in these races and really pushing for the people that are going to continue that leverage of power to switch back to the Republican side so we can get back to some kind of semblance of normalcy? Right. Yeah, we, we you know, I'll, I'll start with your last note about, you know, uh, which obviously uh, makes it uh, an assumption, right, implicit that we're not in a state of normalcy now. We're not, right? There's there's mass uh, chaos over the war, all over the world. Our foreign policy is a disaster. You know, we have uh, potentially three fronts to be involved in, Ukraine, now uh, Israel, and 
uh, you know, China's obviously eyeing Taiwan. Sure. Uh, we're going to bring uh, Xi Jinping to San Francisco and fet him there, you know, with $2,000 plate dinners. And, uh, you know, Biden doesn't even have the self-respect for America to say like, no, 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 you know, Chinese dictator, you come to me in D.C. or at the very least, come to me in Delaware, right? If I'm Joe Biden, I have to vacation at the beach all the time. Like, you know, at least come to my beach house for a, yeah, a summit. You know, Trump had had uh, him over to uh, to Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, we're not in a state of normalcy. We need to, uh, uh, I think, get uh, both houses of Congress. And we need to take the presidency. The candidate that I'm supporting in my personal capacity is President Trump. Uh, very strongly. And I think we need him back in the White House. I think that uh, all of these forces, unprecedented lawfare or what I've, I've started, you know, calling it my trademark term, journo lawfare, Ooh, right? Like it's that. not just uh, lawfare by the, uh, you know, these, these uh, interest groups and, you know, supposedly public interest law firms, et cetera. They're also in a direct partnership and tie-in with, uh, MSNBC and CNN and this revolving door of FBI uh, uh, former agents or management officials, former DOJ prosecutors. And, uh, you know, they just go on and they badmouth the MAGA movement. They badmouth populist conservatism. They attack Trump constantly and they just feed whatever the latest development is like ravenous wolves or they feed on it. Uh, you know, as soon as it happens in in court. So, you know, I think we need President Trump back in the White House. Personally, I think we need both houses of Congress. And if President uh, uh, Trump does come back into office and takes the oath on January 20th, 2025, as I hope he does, one reason why we're going to need the Senate and not just the House, which, you know, uh, controls the purse strings according to the Constitution, but yeah. which, uh, you know, needs to do a much better job of that as we're in budget crisis. We need the Senate, too, because that's where the uh, officials who lead the uh, the cabinet agencies and departments uh, and all the other thousands of uh, federal political appointees, if there were, you know, hundreds, if they need to go through Senate confirmation, they have to be confirmed there by and with the advice and consent of, of the Senate. So, you know, my own nomination uh, was held up uh, even at a time when we had control of the Senate. You know, I was uh, uh, nominated in June of 2017, uh, had a confirmation hearing by the fall, and in ordinary times would have been confirmed by the end of 2017. But no, 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 the Democrats held me up. Yep. I didn't take office for really a record of, uh, you know, until November 1st of 2018. Um, so if you think that's what they did to President Trump to hold up important nominees who could make a difference in his first term, in his second term, if we don't have control of the Senate, they're going to make it even worse. No, they certainly are. I mean, you and you know, the sad part is you saw how fast the the Senate was able to confirm all of these agency heads, disgraced ones who, you know, were forced to quit places like CIS, Alejandro Mayorkas, a blatant revenge hire who's completely ruined the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland. Xavier Becerra, who's the head of an agency he has no experience in whatsoever and has ran it awfully, almost equally as awful as Pete Buttigieg has as well. And, and then when you just see the way that the, the White House press secretary and both of them have acted, uh, you know, not only in the face of the press, but, you know, kind of it with a disgust and disdain for the American people. It's just wild to see that the way this you couldn't have like 
ask for a worse situation. And then, you know, with the rapid decline of Joe Biden, both physically and mentally over the course of the last three years, they couldn't have, you know, set themselves up for disaster like the entire world's on fire, much like it is right now. That's right. And and you mentioned Buttigieg, right? That's a nice tie into the first subject I raised about uh, the SEC climate disclosure rule and all of the, you know, climate mongering here, there and everywhere as if it's the world's most important issue. You know, one of the early ways I encountered that was at the Pentagon, right? Where you have these folks who, you know, Obama had brought in or, you know, had just kind of embedded themselves there talking about climate change being the most important issue. But on Buttigieg, right, he goes to Ukraine and one reason why he's there is because, you know, well, of course, you know, the Ukrainian uh, economy, buildings, infrastructure, it's being wrecked by the war against uh, uh, Putin. Right. OK. But one of our big priorities is we have to make sure that when they build back, uh, you know, after they're victorious in the war, which <laughs> parenthetically, I don't think they're going to be. But when they build back, it's got to be green. It's got to be green infrastructure. That's really important. You know, we have to spend U.S. dollars to, uh, you know, to prop up the Ukraine and have them, you know, get a boondoggle of green rebuilding as opposed to just, you know, I mean, I don't think that uh, this should be a priority for us at all. I think it's a European problem. And I think the European countries are rich and that they should be uh, far more interested in in financing uh, defense of Ukraine. But, uh, you know, for the U.S. not just to be sending weapons and be the biggest financier, but to, uh, you know, be loading on and larding on the green boondoggle on the Ukraine issue. It's just, it makes you want to pull out your hair or for me, you know, I don't have a lot left, but whatever I do have left. Yeah. You got to take care of that. That's very important. And, you know, uh, segueing off that Ukraine commentary, we are going to have Colonel Douglas McGregor in, uh, in just a little bit. He's going to be joining us on the back end of the show today. So we're going to get an update from over there in Europe and then on the latest that's going on with Israel and Hamas as well. So, Jeff, it's been awesome sitting down with you today. It's it's been a wild week. You know, you saw President Trump how well received his rally was in comparison to like the nearly five and a half million people that turned into the debate. You actually have some high drama now. It seems like the honeymoon period for Speaker Johnson has kind of weared off, and and now it's back to the basics of fighting over CRs and stuff like that. You know, just in in the last touch out here, how do you see this shaking out in the House of Representatives? I know it's a slim margin, and most of what they are able to pass is DOA once it gets to the Senate, but do you see them pulling out any kind of legislative victory, at least budgetary moving forward here and into the new year? Well, I mean, it's going to be tough, but uh, I think that they need to hold the line. They need to try to get control of the FISC again, because yeah. under this ridiculous modern monetary theory and under just, you know, kind of naked pork barrel programs and boondoggles, like especially green ones, sure. like the Green New Deal that got uh, adopted in, in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. I mm. mean, is that an Orwellian <laughs> title or what? Because yeah. it's driven up inflation. It drives up the debt. Um, we got to fight these things. We're in an inflection period, I think, in terms of Republicans, I think more and more people are uh, waking up to the fact that a lot of the people who get elected as Republicans really don't have the, the interests of ordinary Americans at heart. They serve uh, corporate interests or they say one thing to get elected and then they do an entirely different thing. I think we're starting to see that, uh, you know, the, the American people see that. And so, you know, they're electing more and more people who are actually going to bring into alignment mm-hmm. 
the 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 positions and the policies that the American people want with how the Republicans in the House, uh, et cetera, are actually voting. Um, and you know, it's kind of one problem at a time, right? I mean, in general, the senators are kind of a squishier bunch. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, but but let's at least get the House in a spot where they insist on using their control over the powers of the purse to to bring us back to fiscal sanity. Oh, you're right. Two people who aren't squished, though, you know, great enjoyers of Steak for Breakfast, new guests on the show, Senator Tuberville and Vance. I've kind of been holding up the line and frustrating just about everybody up there. We need to see more of that. I think the more we see it, you know, with the pushback from the America First delegation and the House of Representatives and the, and the handful of senators that have hardcore pushed back on Mitch McConnell over the course of the last three years as his health has continued to decline as well. We're kind of setting the stage for something good, but we can't take our eyes off the prize. You mentioned it in the beginning. It's the 2024 presidential election. It's going to be the biggest one of our lifetimes and moving forward. At least we'll have, you know, future conversations to discuss it. Obviously, we're going to be live linking the Center for Renewing America in our show description today, uh, Jeff. But anybody that wants to find you on social media, where can they check you out? Sure. So I'm at Jeff Clark US uh, on Twitter and Getter and at Real Jeff Clark on, on Truth Social. And if I could, uh, you know, since I'm one of the main folks under attack, both in Georgia and in the DC bar, sure. uh, much like they're they're going after in California, John Eastman's license are going after my license, uh, but mine's in DC. Uh, you know, if if folks could think about uh, contributing to my legal defense fund, that would be great. That's at givesendgo.com/slash. Jeff Clark. And we'll be live linking that in the show description as well. This is the former U.S. Department of Justice double assistant attorney general. He's doing great work now at the Center for Renewing America. Jeff Clark, thanks for jumping on with us and have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. Always good to be on. Ron DeSanctis, High Heels University. Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump fan club. Nikki Birdbrain Haley, Bush War Crime Institute. Tim Scott, I'm just happy to be here. Chris Christie, Golden Corral State. So that was awesome, you guys, but that's the last time we're going to do that, right? Because <laughs> we really, really, really want to hear from these candidates, and they worked really hard for us tonight, okay? All right, jumping back into the news here, it was great catching up with Jeff Clark. He gave us a lot of insight to a lot of things that are going on right now. In and outside of the Beltway, stuff going on with the House and Senate, things going on with Joe Biden and FEC regulations. I didn't think we were going to get a little bit of a tutorial on just how important it is winning back the House and Senate next year. But, hey, here we are. And, and obviously he made it known who his candidate and horse in this race is right now. It's obviously President Trump. And uh, it was great catching up with him. We'll look forward to having him back again soon. So. They had the third Republican debate on Wednesday, the exact same time that Donald Trump held his rally. And Noah, I thought you uh, would really enjoy that mocked up intro that we let in with here. What'd you think? <laughs> that was pretty good. High Heels University. Okay. I just want to put it out there. And Noah, you, you can be my witness on this one. There is only one person in the entirety of the media worldwide that from day one has attached Golden Corral to Chris Christie and Stacey Abrams. Noah, yeah. back, back me up on this, Noah. Yeah, the Golden Corral thing, that definitely originated with the Steak for Breakfast podcast, 100%. I was tagging Golden Corral in post for <laughs> all the way back for when Stacey Abrams won governor and then threw it right over to Chris Christie when he announced his big <laughs> campaign. And, uh, you know, people were asking Chris Christie about why isn't he getting out of the race because he says at some point 
in the near future, he's going to be doing good things to which I responded. You'll definitely be doing things big, Chris. So it was awful. It, it was, there was no content. You know, when you, when you look at the moderators, you've got the new meet the fake press interviewer, Kristen Welker. She's a radical leftist. You've got Lester Holt who hates everything America first. And it took 80 minutes for any of the candidates to be asked a question about the United States. You know, they wanted to talk about Israel and Iran and Ukraine and Russia and China. 80 minutes. Imagine listening to a presidential debate, Noah, and you don't get asked one question about the country you're running to be president in until you've passed the 80-minute mark of the debate. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, why would you talk about the biggest issue that we're having right now? Why would you, why, why would you want to talk about that? Do you really think that's gotten to the point no, is the establishment Republicans trying to lose? Yes. You know, Kevin McCarthy. No, I don't think so. I don't think they really are, but the, uh, whoever's whoever's making the calls for them are just, maybe they're bought out by China. I, I really don't know. Like, whoever their analysts are, whoever their focus groups are, they've well, definitely it's, been It's funny you mentioned the, that because, you know, strategist Frank Luntz, roommate and probably closet boyfriend of uh, former speaker Kevin McCarthy, you know, did a post yesterday of, of a picture of Ronna McDaniel on the stage at the GOP debate and said that she's Republican's secret weapon and that they really haven't harnessed her to the best of her abilities yet, which is like five straight election cycles of losing, including... Secret weapon? Yeah, this week. Well, that's another thing, though. Before we get into this debate, I'm sure you saw a lot of the election results. Daniel Cameron lost to the Democrat incumbent in Kentucky. That's weird that, you know, they reelected a Democrat. You had a place that's typically conservative, like Ohio, passed legislation that now legalizes marijuana and supports late-term abortions. And then you have Glenn Youngkin, who, like many others, has been rolled out there as the next great thing for MAGA and, and the heir apparent to Donald Trump, lose in entirety his Congress at the state legislative level. The state Senate in Virginia remained Democrat, and then obviously the House was flipped from red to blue. So now Glenn Youngkin is in like a... Donald Trump last two years of his administration when they lost the House and Senate and he can write executive orders. But besides that, he's not going to do anything, which, as far as I'm concerned, essentially cooks him for the next election cycle after President Trump gets out in 2028. But, you know, the thing is, is that all of these people keep getting pushed to the front and it's just become more of an embarrassment and a clown show to watch. They go to events that are, you know, sparsely attended. Their talking points are all regurgitated president trump and they're all cringe every single one of them are disgusting cringe i mean what can you positively say at this point about Ron DeSantis, nikki haley or chris christie i don't even know why chris christie keeps showing up unless there's three donuts in the back he's hungry yeah you know and but, i mean why would you bother like i i don't understand other than you're making money by doing this you're going to get a book deal out of it you're potentially just getting yourself in the media eye so you can potentially get some other position like He's not, they're not going to get cabinet positions. No. I mean, Vivek, maybe, of anybody, because he's actually, you know, seems like he's got his shit together. I like the way Christina Bob put it one time when she was on the show. They can hire him for the Secretary of Education right before President Trump says that they're closing the, the Department of Education. <laughs> got him. No, and it's, it's funny, you know, I, I think some Vivek, out of everybody, is starting to get it that this is a joke and that nationally they're not getting a lot of traction. He brought, like, kind of a fuck it. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I don't care what questions they answer me. I'm going to have some pre-prepared talking points that kind of blow up the establishment because they are embracing a culture of losing. I did refer to 
Kevin McCarthy's boyfriend, Frank Luntz. In addition, you know, Kevin McCarthy sat down for a McCarthy exclusive with CNN this week. Oh! Where he talked about the only way Matt Gates uh, could best be served punishment is if he's expelled from Congress. You're talking about someone who's going to win every single race he runs in for his House seat by 70%, and Kevin McCarthy says he needs to be expelled for removing him as Speaker. So if you don't think these assholes are still running behind the scenes, making sure that America First gets slowed down at every corner, well, you better start looking a little bit harder because they're leaving actual receipts for you. Kevin McCarthy can't not go on TV and cry about just being a regular congressman now. Um, Jumping into this debate, though, we're going to give it a brief little once-over of coverage. Here's Vivek in his opening statement asked by Lester Holt. Kwame, let me turn to you. Uh, Please make your case. Why would you... Uh, Why should you be the nominee and not the former president? I think there's something deeper going on in the Republican Party here. And I am upset about what happened last night. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. We're a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronna McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018, 2020. 2022, no red wave that never came. We got trounced last night in 2023. And I think that we have to have accountability in our party. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my, yield my time to you. And frankly, look, the people there are cheering for losing in the Republican Party. Yep. Think about who's moderating this debate. This should be Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk. We'd have 10 times the viewership asking questions that GOP primary voters actually care about and bringing more people into our party. You think the Democrats, and we've got Kristen Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? They wouldn't do it. And so the fact of the matter is, I mean, Kristen, I'm going to use this time because this is actually about you in the media and the corrupt media establishment. Ask you the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that you pushed on this network for years. Was that real or was that Hillary Clinton made up disinformation? Answer the question. Go. This is how we get our country back. We need accountability because this media rigged the 2016 election. Mm. They rigged the 2020 election with a mm. Hunter Biden laptop story. Mr. Ramaswamy, and they're going to rig this election. Your time is up. Accountability. Let me turn to That's Governor, Governor Christie. Why you- yeah, let's move it over to Governor Christie. Yeah, let's move it over to that end of the scale. So Vivek takes his, op- his opening statement to say the Republican Party has embraced losing. It's all Ronna McDaniel's fault because she's pulling the strings behind the scenes. He called her up on stage and said he'd like to yield the rest of his time for her to offer her resignation as the RNC chair and then proceeded to go on to call the uh, 2016, 2020, and 2022 elections all rigged and stolen. How do you feel about that, Noah? <laughs> it wasn't rigged and stolen? I just think it's funny. When we did that teaser intro for the segment and he said he was like, President, Donald Trump fan club, it's like, if there's one thing you could say, even if Donald Trump doesn't like you, to get his attention and see his eyebrows go up, it's that you use those pronouns when talking about elections that he participated in, especially yeah. in 2021. He's like, hold on, I'm interested. Hmm. So, no, he had, he had good things to say about Vivek. I don't trust him as far as I could throw him, and he looks like he weighs about 90 pounds soaking wet, and I could probably hammer throw him about. 10, 15 yards. If, if I got a couple good spins on and let him go at the at the right angle, he'd probably at least go eight and then bounce 12. Like if you had like your hand on the back of the pants and like one of his pant legs, yeah, oh, he'd probably get him pretty good. Oh, no, I'm talking about above the ankle, above the wrist, and full-on spin. Oh, one of those. Yeah, yeah. like okay. a hammer throw. I'd like to see that. Me too. 
they still have turned us down repeatedly to come on the show. <laughs> I thought he was going to come on. Didn't I, we have him? I, I wonder why we haven't had him yet. And uh, what's her but name? we but we we had the positive movement towards the yes, he's going to come on direction at one point, right? Trisha did indicate that. So did Kathy as well. And uh, I, I mean, I text them. Their mind. I text them all the time. <laughs> Listen, I I think as soon as he started uh, gaining gaining uh, notoriety, I think that's when we lost him. And that's the funny. If we would have gotten him like a couple of weeks before, then we probably would have had him. Well, that's the thing. Notoriety could be one thing, but your five to seven percent in the polls hasn't changed for the entirety of your run. So yeah, but I meant I meant when like he started. His notoriety is based on him just kind of being a little bit based. Right, doing Tucker, doing Rogan, yeah. saying the right things, kissing the right asses. We'll see where yeah. it goes. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know him. I don't know of him. I hear stories about him. I don't have time to vet him. Uh, he can continue to keep saying the right things because all it's doing right now is making the other idiots up there look like complete fucking morons because everyone should be singing the praises of President Trump in regards to this election cycle because at, the, at this point he's the only one that could save this country. Speaking of mm-hmm. which, they... Did not touch on the topic of the United States, as I've already pointed out, for well over an hour and uh, definitely switched gears negatively as far as I've concerned because they pretty much were going around polling people who they thought we should go to war with next. Senator Tim Scott, who hasn't really said anything that's resonated with anyone on any of the debates that he's participated in so far, said something that uh, kind of set up some alarms for me. Let's hear him. You have to strike in Iran. If you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake, and the head of the snake is Iran and not simply their proxies. In order for us to have a powerful response from America, we have to be in a position of strength. As President of the United States, my foreign policy is simple. You cannot negotiate with evil. Oh. You have to destroy it. Oh. All right, Senator Scott, thank you. I don't remember Donald Trump destroying all the evil on the planet. Yeah. Man. He did send messages, though, to people like Abdul. Abdul. Al-Baghdadi cried like a little bitch before he died. He pointed that out for Like us. a dog. Like a dog crying in the tunnel. And then, obviously, Soleimani, who they're still scraping off a tarmac in Iraq. But yeah, that's that's kind of I'm glad nobody tuned into this presidential debate because that's the last thing a bunch of boomers need to be getting worked up off of. Somebody like Tim Scott coming in there and saying my foreign policy towards Iran is we must destroy them. Obviously, yes, but I mean Donald Trump had brought them so close to internal revolution before he left office that first time just by choking them with sanctions and proxy striking them in any way shape or form he could. You know, he said they were so close to coming to the negotiation table and he would have had that deal worked out in just a short few weeks. However, we all know what happened. We'll have to see if Iran's ready to negotiate again in 2025. I want to remind everybody where to listen to the show today. No matter what platform it's on, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio, make sure you're following the show. More importantly, make sure it's downloading to your electronic device. Helps us out in a lot of big ways, algorithms, suggestions, and of course that Top 100. In addition, our social medias are on Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast accounts, follow them, and then hit the notification bell. I think one of the most annoying back and forths of the night, I mean, Nikki Haley was so stupid. They were talking, like, Vivek called her Dick Cheney in three-inch heels. (laughs) Nikki Haley responded like, I don't Ah, wear... I don't wear them unless I can run in them. No, she said, I don't wear high heels for looks. I wear them for ammunition. Maybe, I'm not really... Experience. No, she said that, but she also said, like, I, I don't wear heels unless I can run in them. 
She's a fucking which moron. is like interesting and good for you, but. You know, I get nervous sometimes when the people in Trump world say that, like, those close to the president sometimes push her as a possible VP candidate because... I, I keep hearing that, yeah. too, well, like, I mean, in other places. Yeah, and it's just like, I understand what they're doing, but when you have so much... I don't want to spoil it. We're going to touch on another one that President Trump brought into the fold, but you have Governor Christie Noem. Obviously, you have people like Ben Carson, who would add a lot to the ticket. President Trump alluded to another one, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But this back and forth between Haley and Ramaswamy... You know, kind of went off the rails a little bit, and well, it just got ugly. Let's hear it. Uh, we've talked about this. You campaign on TikTok. How do you get TikTok banned if you use it? Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which is about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Your adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. Her supporters propping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. We got to go further. We have to ban any U.S. company actually transferring U.S. data to the Chinese. Here's a story most people don't know. Airbnb hands over U.S. user data to the CCP. Now, that's a U.S.-owned company. So this is the problem when you have Republicans that temporarily go the way the winds blow, and now it's popular to talk tough on China when she was U.N. ambassador, called them literally her words, not my, our great friend. You can't be fair-weather fans of the right policy. Get to the root cause. Even U.S. companies in Silicon Valley are regularly doing it. Cut the virtue signaling. The fact of the matter is Democrats are on TikTok today. The only person, one of the few people who is putting up content the way the actual algorithms work, speaking for pro-Israel views or others, Ambassador is Haley, um, more Republicans will join it. But uh, stop U.S. companies from turning over data to Chinese companies. Uh, That's the real answer. Like, uh, the Christian, don't get she did get a your scum in there when Vivek Ramaswamy referenced her adult child who does TikTok. Uh, we pointed out after the last debate when she was railing on TikTok and in, in real time, her daughter and her daughter's boyfriend were making TikTok videos. I don't know. What do you think? This seems like a lot of virtue signaling to me. Yeah, that's all it is. Until they have any kind of legitimate social media reform and, and Internet guidance, uh, probably at the federal level, we're not going to see any of these apps banned, are we? No, they have no interest in doing anything that's beneficial to the American public. It's just all talk. You know, one of the other points that he was able to make about Nikki Haley is that she was completely broke, bankrupt, and foreclosing on her home when she left public office and then became uh, a member of the board of directors for companies like Raytheon <laughs> and, you know, all the plane makers and stuff like that. And, and next thing you know, so that's rags to riches. $100 million she's worth now. Imagine that. Just eight short, eight short years, which is another thing. What a difference a day makes. A dollar makes. Uh, you know, a lot of people mention Nikki Haley and, and you know her her career. She hasn't been an elected official in nearly a decade, and then you know she served on the UN for the as ambassador during the Trump administration. But again, that was appointed and, and not a race that she had to win. She had to win it, I think, at a confirmation level. But that's about it. So, you know, you take into context the fact that these people haven't been, I mean, her, her single digits in most states and, and double digits in places like South Carolina, where she's freaking from, is more of a paper tiger than a lot of people allude to. We're going to be closing it out here. As you can probably tell, no, we haven't had too much from Ron DeSantis. He really didn't participate in the debate other than, you know, people took videos of him making weird faces. 
Uh, obviously, he's not walking with that weird gait anymore. He's got a new one. You, you know when you get new sneakers and you don't want to crease them, so you kind of walk <laughs> like on the back of your heels? That's how he's walking now off the stage, and people were just like videotaping him, like walking to the restroom in between uh, breaks and stuff, and we're like, imagine having to walk this way just because people make fun of the lifts in your boots. And Wait, so he was he was like walking more awkwardly than he was already? He was doing one of these. Because, you know, people were like stopping the videos of him walking where it's like his foot is all the way bent and then you can see there's like a mile of boot left at the front and then draw, yeah, yeah, yeah. drawing the outlines of feet and legs on it. It's like, yeah. this has to be lifts. This has to be... Wait, so there's so there's videos of him walking even more awkwardly now. Just waddling because like a of duck. That. Yeah. Now, now he doesn't walk to where he bends the toe of his boot. Now he's bow-legged. Well, he's bow-legged from wearing those lifts anyways. I mean, he's just a mess of a man. And, you know, so many people have taken pictures. Vivek Ramaswamy's like 5'9". Ron DeSantis was shorter than him. Kim Reynolds is like 5'8". Ron DeSantis was like the same height as her. People just draw the line across the top of his head and then go to reference the person he's standing next to every single time he takes a picture with people now. It's like he can't escape it. He wears shoe lifts. He's short. And he's awkward. And it's just been out there for everyone to rail on him because they've denied all of it. Doesn't anybody have access to his military records or is there something that's like public public database that i mean like wouldn't he have his height in centimeters from the military he, he was listed at six foot as a collegiate athlete but again i'm five nine and i was listed at six foot and when i went to do my height and weight my coach that with said, the cleats? yeah they said if you put on three quarter inch spikes in your football helmet you're six foot so that's what you're gonna yeah. be in the program but so that uh, makes sense yeah i was listed as 511 in a different sport i played for the same college in the following season so yeah same person it's pretty funny. I, it was somebody that was talking about how the five eleven is the is the maximum amount of lie you can do. Yeah, if you're if you're short. We're gonna get to the debate poll numbers in a second. I do want to play part of the Vex closeout. It's also something that a lot of people on the campaign trail uh, and, and directly associated to President Trump, including himself, at some points when asked in interviews, has touched on, and that's is Joe Biden gonna make it to the finish line? And even if he does and win the Democrat nomination, is there going to be some shenanigans at the DNC nomination next year introducing a different candidate? I thought it was pretty interesting that someone actually called it out this early. Let's hear it. I also want to close with one message to the Democrat Party. End this farce that Joe Biden is going to be your nominee. We know he's not even the president of the United States. He's a puppet for the managerial class. So have the guts to step up and be honest about who you're actually going to put up so we can have an honest debate. Biden should step aside, end his candidacy now, so we can see whether it's Newsom or Michelle Obama or whoever else. Just tell us the truth so we can have an honest debate. What do you think about that? It's kind of an interesting take that he would call out Big Big Mike and, and Gavin Newsom as possible substitutes for Joe Biden. Well, God forbid you start putting that in people's, you know, in their mind and think that's an actually a valid option. I mean, there's there's no question that something's going to happen. Biden's going to bow out or they're just going to throw him to the wolves completely like they already seem to be with all the uh, Hunter Biden bullshit. Well, you saw all the subpoenas that have been issued over the last couple of days finally, right? Yeah. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in our third news segment. You know, and for as much as Ron DeSantis was non-existent, during this debate, he sure had a lot to say afterwards where he tried to claim victory. Now, Noah, here's the thing. Vivek Ramaswamy said a lot of things during that debate that people on both sides of the aisle don't like. Obviously, he talked about rigged and stolen elections. He talked about hyping up President Trump. He called for the failures of Ron McDaniel. 
you know, then jumps on to some of the leftist talking points that Joe Biden is fit for duty and ready to roll in his reelection campaign and alluded to the fact that people like Big Mike and Gavin Newsom could be potential Democrat nominees for the president. Pissed off a lot of people. So, of course, when all the mainstream media polls came out, Vivek Ramaswamy finished third place in all of them even though you've just heard some of the strongest talking points almost from anywhere outside of President Trump this entire season. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, Vivek said all the stuff that they wanted. And I mean, if you're going to if you're going to base him coming in first only on the fact that he said what everybody wanted to hear, then yes, that's exactly what happened. You know, and at the same time, they've crowned Nikki Haley the winner of the debate, the clear winner, even though she got hammered by everybody on stage almost for the entirety of it. And Tim Scott beat her to the fact that he would go to war with Iran, even though you know she really wants to super, super bad. Wait, I misheard you. So Vivek got third place? Yeah, they had Rondamints came in at, DeSanctis came in in second in most of the polls. Really? Yeah. yeah I per- can't imagine. I mean, I mean, he got a couple of good answers off, but... I mean, if you want to talk about the crowd interaction, Vivek killed everybody. Yeah, I think he did too. Um, Ron DeSantis in the post-game show actually said that the only reason President Trump is beating him in the polls is because he's enduring so much lawfare. Let's hear him. I'm curious what you've learned on the campaign trail, right? Campaigns aren't easy. And I want to know what you're telling your voters and your donors, because a year ago, a Wall Street Journal poll had you 14 points above former President Trump. And so it seems as Republican voters have gotten to know you more, your poll numbers have dropped. I don't think so, that's it. So I don't think that's learned? it. Because even this Des Moines poll, I have the highest favorability and the highest we consider. I think the issue is, if you look at the information flow, when I got reelected, I was on, I was dominating the news. Trump was not getting a lot of news. What changed was... Was the Alvin Bragg indictment, where he started to dominate. So the you're saying again. the indictments are helping him with the GOP voters, without a doubt. It definitely helped. The, the Bragg certainly did. And part, and part of it is I think they feel, and I agree on the Bragg, that it was not um, a valid case. But it's also just the fact that if you look at the amount of media he gets versus me, that the information flow in these national polls is what does it. I think the difference in like in Iowa and New Hampshire is you have a chance to pierce through that. Yeah, he may get five to one coverage on me, but I can go shake someone's hand. I can run advertising and I can try to even that out. But that you're not going to see, I think, the sea change in that until people really start to make decisions. I do think with Kim Reynolds endorsing me, though, I think that that's a big moment for the Iowa caucus because I've talked to people in Iowa. Basically, they said, you know what? When when Governor Reynolds came out for for the for Governor DeSantis, basically that's telling Iowa caucus goes, you know what? You got to plug in now, and you're going to start seeing that. He may as well have said that he could reach things on the top shelf. Have you ever heard of somebody try to give? That many excuses for why they're down anywhere between 30 and 50 points in every poll. Yeah. He's losing. No, but- yeah, but I can go shake people's hands. Like, well, it's obviously not working. You can shake all the hands you want. You're still down 50 points, bud. Yeah, he was losing. He's losing by 30 points in his own freaking home state. Yeah. Well, that sort of makes sense to me just because he abandoned his fucking state and he doesn't even fucking live there anymore. So the Daily Mail put out a poll who won the third debate. Donald Trump, 30%, Ron DeSantis, 20%, Vivek Ramaswamy, 19%, Nikki Haley, 13%, Tim Scott, 6 Chris Christie, 5 don't know, 8 Donald Trump beat the entire field by 10 points, and he wasn't even there. Jesus. That's brutal. And here's the, here's the follow-up poll to that one. This was the follow-up question. Do you think President Trump was right to stay away from the debate? 64% Trump was right. 29% Trump was wrong. 8% don't know. And they have it on the backdrop of a picture of President Trump dancing. So, nice. yeah, he was definitely correct in not staying away. I mean, it would have been it would have been good for us for him to be part of it just because it would have given us a shit ton of content. 
you know what? I, I don't see at this point, if everybody dropped out tomorrow and there was one candidate and they consolidated all of their points into the person that would run against Donald Trump, let's just say it's Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, they would still be double digits behind him. And I still don't think Donald Trump would debate them. No, There's, it would be worth I mean, it's not worth his time, but we would like it just because of the content. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. All of these people are hypothesizing what the world would look like under their leadership. We've already seen in a lot of cases, especially border security, the, the domestic economy, and geopolitics, what Donald Trump was all about for the first four years that he was in office. Guys, we're not going to be tracking this like we always do. Whenever somebody says something retarded on the campaign trail, we'll be sure to include it in the show. I'm so glad that this debate is over. Fun fact, Donald Trump put out a statement today that he would not be attending a fourth debate if they decided to do one. So, How many debates do they normally do, like on the regular? So they had 11 scheduled through next year. Really? Yeah. And the next one's coming, like, I think the second week of December. And and the stipulations keep getting higher. Next, next debate, you might only really have... Uh, DeSanctus, Birdbrain, and Vivek. I mean, people will still watch it. I mean, whatever. It, it was probably a swan song for for Tim Scott as well. As I see him getting out of this race, as what had, were the what were the final numbers for the people watching the debate in lieu of watching Trump or vice versa? It's hard to get Trump numbers because it wasn't put on. Uh, you I know, heard the video kept going down too. Yeah, but but I mean, obviously. A lot of people watch the Trump. I'm assuming that more than 5 million people watch the Trump rally. That's what watched the debate. So yeah. people are starting to wake up and understand it. And I think they're getting really tired of it. Uh, they didn't like the fact that we didn't show up because here's the deal. A lot of the populist candidates that ran across the country were pushed off the primary ballots by people like Ronna McDaniel and Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. You have Daniel Cameron, who Trump endorsed because he was the Republican uh, nominee there for the governorship running against an incumbent, which usually is a tough battle who worked for Mitch McConnell for almost a decade. It's like, why are you going to send Mitch McConnell's surrogate down there to run for the governorship when everybody hates his fucking guts down there anyways, especially mm-hmm. at this point. So, you know, as this thing continues to shape up for president Trump, we're going to see how their narratives cut into the mainstream media's ones that they're trying to feed you. I think Vivek Ramaswamy gave you a decent look into what that looks like at the third RNC debate. But we'll have to just, you know, kind of pick it up next week and see where everybody's at in regards to uh, maybe losing some of these candidates. Doug Bergen wasn't on the stage the other night. I have a feeling he's going to be getting out soon as well. So we're going to be jumping in with Congresswoman Victoria Sparks. She's coming back to the show right now. But before we do that, let's hear from one of our partners. Friends, I want to take a minute and talk to you about cigars. Whether you're on the golf course, fishing on the lake, or doing some yard work around the house, our friend Alan has got you covered. He's launched... The Patriot Cigar Company. The tobacco is handpicked in the fields of Nicaragua, right next to where Mike Lindell picks his coffee beans. The cigars are hand rolled each three years. If you get a promo code STAKE here, you're going to get 15% off your total order. Every order over $100, free shipping, and a $10 e gift card is included with every purchase. MyPatriotCigars.com, that's MyPatriotCigars.com, a premium smoke for freedom loving patriots. All right, joining us next on the show today, this Big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. She's a congresswoman who represents Indiana 5. Very excited to be sitting down with Representative Victoria Sparks. Again, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you for having me. Well, it's been kind of busy up there for you guys the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we haven't talked to you since before the motion to vacate and then the battle for the speakership. We just want to kind of, how are you feeling right now that Mike Johnson's had a couple of weeks to kind of, you know, get his feet wet and, and hit the ground running? We saw things were kind of speeding up, appropriation bill here and there getting done, you know, obviously getting some aid for Israel put together. But then it seemed like, you know, pushback from the Senate and the White House and everything's kind of gumming up ahead of the uh, end of the CR that we're currently in. Well, I think not truly think Mike is the right person for this time because we need to do some governing. We do a lot of politicking and fundraising, but country in really badly need of governing. And I work with Mike for several years in the Judiciary Committee. He's a personal friend. He's a really good human being. Unfortunately, you know, administration and the Senate decide to, you know, to take not really not to find consensus, but try to take aggressive you and try to continue promote agenda that is bad for the people so we'll have to fight with them you know and uh, i'm glad to see that more of uh you know more you know desire for us to start dealing with regular order with processes with appropriations is happening in the house and we get things moving unfortunately made us all now so crazy being in dc for such a long time everyone is tired but, um, you know, we'll have to do our job and we'll have to get things moving. So I think, you know, uh, I hope that the Senate is not going to think that they can do business as usual and try to jam us with CR before Christmas and omnibus because it is not going to happen. Yeah, so you're more of in favor of like what what Speaker Johnson has proposed, and that's like the laddered one where you guys can work on appropriations. It doesn't mean if a CR happens on November 17th, you guys get a free pass to go home and hang out all the way up through January 3rd. Yeah, and I think it's also people, you know, if we do mid, you know, if we look at either two tiers CR one, but go to mid January because mid January CR gives us more time, sure. but also it hits one percent cut, automatic cut that actually was agreed during that ceiling negotiations. So it's actually with inflation, it's actually a significant cut, you know, considering the inflation, but that actually was agreed to Biden administration. So based on that agreement. If we have a CR outstanding of January 1st, it is a symptomatic cut, you know, but there is also a discussion. Maybe we should do part of that, you know, of our appropriations through CR from, you know, continue resolution and part of it actually do a, you know, CR for the one that we passed for uh, early December. So we can actually force more discussion of, you know, in conference committee on this appropriation with the Senate, how this process should work. It hasn't been done for over a decade. But that's the only way how we should be governing. That's the only way to hold the other branch accountable, to govern through 12 appropriations. And I fought a lot with Kevin McCarthy last Congress when we were changing the rules. Me and one of my colleagues forced a change in the rules because that's a proper thing to do. He didn't want to do it because it's hard. I'm glad to see that Speaker Johnson understands this and he really wants to do it. And it's just a matter for us to agree what is the best strategy, but I think we have to win in the Senate and not allow, you know, CR before Christmas. No, that's uh, definitely one of the lines you guys got to hold. You, you know, you talked about cuts. One of the interesting things I've seen over the course of this week kind of unfold, there's been a lot of amendments to cut salaries of some of the cabinet level positions and agency heads within the Biden regime, uh, reducing their salary all the way down to $1. You know, I see a lot of the congressmen and women that you serve with posting about this online, but there's a lot of people in the comment section who ask, like, I really don't understand what this means. Can you explain it to us a little bit? 
Well, I think, you know, and it's specifically for some of the political appointments, there's been a discussion, you know, of these people not enforcing the law. So what is the way to enforce it? So, so my colleagues, unfortunately, <laughs> these amendments are not going to pass because sure. on the bipartisan basis, we're not holding, you know, the other branch accountable. But especially for political appointment, you know, if people are not enforcing our laws, should they get salaries? And a lot of them have very, very high salaries. And I think that's something we have to discuss. But I think it's unfortunately our fault as a Congress. We don't do authorization process. We don't do proper appropriation process. That's why these branches, you know, the branches running wild and these agencies don't care. They don't care about our letters or five minute, you know, speeches that they have pre prepared to say as nothing in the committee. They care about the money. So, you know, as long as we keep giving them the money, they will not care what American people have to say. And the only way American people have an input is through us, Congress. So I think we have to start doing our job and do this appropriation, do authorization, deal with our spending properly and overseeing the other branch. So that's why a lot of people have this, you know, amendments. But unfortunately, on a bipartisan basis. You know, we haven't been governing and uh, it's, you know, and we have to get better. You know, you mentioned about agencies and some of their heads that just don't care about the American people or their their interests or, or you know, focuses on things that don't better serve, you know, the people who live in this country when that's the only job they're supposed to be doing. I did see, you know, there was kind of some deliberations before it, it actually passed, and that's the money for the new FBI headquarters. How do you think that looks to the American people who have seen, you know, a lot of lawfare waged on the citizens here, uh, you know, throughout the course of the last three years in the Biden administration when, when you know, Joe Biden goes out on the campaign trail and ties to to demonize the America first, you know, a quarter or maybe half of the entire population of the country that doesn't politically line up with the radical Democrats. And then, you know, you see, you know, one of the biggest operations that they have is the FBI as far as like physically enforcing the things that they want to push on the American people. And now they're going to get a brand new headquarters. Well, listen, and that is, if you think about FBI and a lot of agents, you know, there are some good people that serve as this agency, but unfortunately, agency is being politicized. And what is done even worse when a lot of these agencies, when President Obama did political appointments, they figure out that they can actually make this political appointment go deeper and on appointments that will be non-political. And they actually, they should be just career people that try to do their job. So there are a lot of now political people almost like infiltrated all of these agencies with very radical agenda. So this agenda is not look, you know, do with drug trafficking, do it with human trafficking to, you know, deal with terrorists and protect. There are a lot of people that have an agenda. It's to suppress and oppress freedoms of the American people. And they become a tyranny now. And it is very dangerous what's happening right now. And there is a double standard what's happening. We have two-tier justice system. And if you are conservative, they will attack you. And they actually will use a police state to come after you. But, you know, if you have some very radical and destructive views, but they like, you know, you might actually get away with anything. So I think it is becoming very dangerous what's happening in these agencies. And we need to have a discussion, you know, including giving money for headquarters, including reauthorizing Section 702 that's been abused because it was set up for foreign citizens on foreign soils. And now it's used to survey American citizens, right. you know, with no due process. So I think there are a lot of things FBI has to answer before we would give them any money or even more money than before. And I 
think this is a valid conversation and it's sad for me to see that a lot of people on my side not willing to have this conversation because what's happening is extremely extremely dangerous and this is these agencies have a lot of power you see what's how whistleblowers are treated in the fbi how people were treated that refused to be forced to do vaccines because they assumed that they would be more conservative and freedom love and you see what they've done to them this is unacceptable it's unacceptable with our agencies suppress and oppress even own employees within them and Congress need to stand up for that and before any money given for anything they need to answer questions do you think there's a fear and underlying fear with some of the people that you serve with, maybe both sides of the aisle, congressmen and women who think that if they publicly go out and speak against things like funding a new FBI building or holding back against, you know, Alejandro Mayorkas and Christopher Ray was in a Senate hearing last week and they were just absolutely embarrassing on display for all the American people to see. But do you think there's a fear that the FBI might be weaponized against them, even members of Congress, if they speak out against defunding them or reducing Christopher Ray's salary or not providing funding for new FBI headquarters? I think it's really a combination. There is a fear, there is ignorance and reluctance, and there are a lot of big money involved with a lot of this. So there are combinations of different things. But, you know, I'll be honest with you, with track record and what SBI has been doing and how violated people's rights, you know, and including some people in Congress, including on bipartisan basis, including show up to some Democrats' houses before election that they were talking about border security. I'm yep. just saying that looks very strange because they can really cause you a lot of headaches, right? And uh, people understand we have very tough election, a lot of money spent, and a lot of people probably thinking like, you know, do I really want to stick my neck? Do I really want to do? But unfortunately, if we don't stand up and if we don't have a courage to stand up for the right thing, there is no lobby for the people in D.C. And we, we're the only one who can protect our republic. So sometimes we have to make this tough, you know, stance. And I know that it's not easy, but uh, we have to either will fail. Well, there you go. Speaking out against tough stances, you know, this week there was the 26th member of Congress in the history of our republic censured. Uh, to this session, Adam Schiff and now Rashida Tlaib, I just want to kind of get your commentary on, on you know, the behavior she's displayed since the Hamas attack on Israel back on October 7th and, and what kind of led up through that process to where even in censorship, it seems like, you know, the, the other side of the aisle seems to celebrate this as like a badge of honor. Well, listen, and I'll tell you something, you know, it was interesting how not hypocritical Republicans are. And we actually, and I was one of the people that were willing to table the first resolution, which dealt calling, you know, very upset people with no matter what idea, call it insurrection. Right. I think we said, you know what, January 6th was an insurrection. You know, where, you know, maybe some people came with better agenda. A lot of people came and they have a right to express their views the same. You know, the event that happened a few weeks ago, people were screaming and shouting, but it was an insurrection. And I think that's not the right thing for us to say that. So it was interesting how a lot of people on my side were willing to table that and, you know, stand up and say, no, people have a right of free speech, but you don't have a right to violence and destruction. And when you call for that and what, you know, so we wrote the resolution and it was supported by majority of the people and much, you know, it was kind of funny that some of the Democrats were trying to hide and not vote. They're not even <laughs> yep. willing to make stance on the right thing. It's sad for me or call out their own side of the party when they have radical views to destroy people of Israel. 
I mean, this is really, I mean, there is a difference when you can say, we know, I like, you know, China or like Russia or Ukraine or Iran or Israel. I mean, it's different things. You can express your own views and I will protect your views. But it's different when you call people to destroy, you know, to destroy some other country and to destroy the people right. that fight in a very difficult fight. And I mean, that is a very tough terrain over there in the Middle East to be a democracy. I mean, we don't even appreciate as much how hard it is. You deal with a lot of radicals and terrorists and very aggressive countries with bad agenda. So to say that, and then you as a members of Congress go go call from that, from destruction of the country, that is you goes beyond that what really should be happening there. So I think it was the right thing to do. And we need to call out this hypocrisy. But it was sad for me to see how a lot of Democrats are so weak. They're not even willing, you know, to actually some of them didn't even vote. They avoided to vote because they're afraid of radical win of their party. Yeah, it's it's weird how they kind of figuratively now sometimes literally in the streets they hold a gun to their head and and make it seem like you know if you're not on board with this then just stay out of our way because it's kind of like that Nancy Pelosi philosophy now it's kind of turned into some radical progressive Marxist communist mm-hmm. hybrid to where it's just like you know and these people have no experiences in the real world and now they're like the speaker boxes for some of the absolute awfulest people on earth I thought it was fantastic that the second resolution to see her censured. Was was passed. I'm in the same uh, delegation as you, Congresswoman. I don't think uh, tying insurrection to what happened when the Palestinian protesters came in, you know, it doesn't help out any of the people that peacefully and, and you know, protested on January 6th to say the, the, the people who came in and yelled and screamed were causing an insurrection as well. I get it. There's a lot of emotions that go on, but at the same time, we have to look at, and play the long game, which sometimes is hard for Republicans. Last thing I want to touch with you on, it's, it's something that's at the forefront of all American minds. You know, you're going through the appropriation process. We know there's a DOA switch in the Senate. We know there's a reluctancy from Joe Biden to sign anything regarding it. And even if something that has to do with border security gets passed, there's very much doubt that Alejandro Mayorkas will enact it. We see him violating uh, the court ruling just a few weeks ago. Again, today, there were tractors with forklifts that were lifting up razor wire and letting people in all over the southern border. How are Republicans going to handle getting through the appropriations process and then other foreign aid to get some kind of the best parts of H.R. 2 up through the Senate and onto Joe Biden's desk? I think, you know, having, you know, tightened the legal framework and doing with what HR2 did, you know, to, you know, to, to decrease the amount of abuses and fraud that happening with asylum processes, through credible fares, through administration, you know, abusing parole authority and also giving more tools, you know, like remain in Mexico type of policy type. A title 42 to DHS in, on, because it used to be CDC, given more authority, I think it's a must. We have to deliver it for the country. I don't think it should be a partisan issue. Considering what's happening right now in the Middle East, considering how now energized a lot of terrorist groups are, we have to secure our border. I'm just sad for me to see that we cannot get other side. I mean, we would argue a lot of some issues and, you know, and it's okay. We have a very big difference in a lot of views. But when it comes to the matters of national security, we should be able to come together. I mean, I do not understand how my Democrat colleagues would not try to do something with us to secure the border. So it's going to be a big fight. I hate to say that we'll have to leverage some of the supplementals for that. I mean, I should, we should not. That should be an issue that, you know, we should be able to come together and say, we're going to deliver it for the people and then we're going to campaign and do other BS we're doing. 
it is sad for me to see that we'll have to use some leverages on administration and on the Senate to get anything done. But it is a must. If we do not secure our border, we will not have our country. We will have a lot of bad things happening here and it's becoming more and more dangerous, you know, and we have to do something about it. So I think this is a must. And I think we will have to dig in on that and hold the ground because I think border and debt, you know, are the two crushing issues that will destroy our country and turn us into, you know, socialism and closer to communism, what a lot of people want in Washington to see. Well, as people are getting ready to enter the holiday season, they are looking for, you know, Black Friday lines and they, they do not want bread lines. So we are we are there with you that, you know, there is a fight ahead. But I, I think it's a fight that you guys are up for. I, I feel like a lot more optimistic since Speaker Johnson took over. You mentioned it yourself at the top. You think he's the right guy for the time we're in right now. And I think you guys are going to finish out this session of Congress uh, after the appropriations process uh, as strong as you guys should have when, when Kevin McCarthy took the gavel last January. Congresswoman, we're going to be live linking your congressional website in the show description today. For anyone that's not following you on social media and wants to check out all the great work you're doing, where can they find you? Well, it's Rep Sparts at Rep Sparts, and you know, you can look at my website, but I'll tell you one thing, one just to add that failure is not an option. So we have to succeed. It's a must. And I hope American people will be with us because the only way we can put pressure on big swamp in Washington DC if American people become more vocal. So I've encouraged your listeners and talk to the neighbors and talk to people that don't get involved and say that matters. This is a time for our country where you need to stand up because there is a big money, big Wall Street and K Street doesn't want anyone to govern. But we have good people, including Speaker Johnson, that cares about our country, loves our country, and he will do whatever it takes. But we need your help. So please stay in touch with us and please stay engaged. We'll be looking forward to having you back on the show as well, Congressman. And, you know, I just want to remind our listenership, piggybacking off of that, it took 10 months to get the correct Speaker of the House in there. It's going to take a little bit more time and going through some of these growing pains in the Republican side of the House to get things going in the right direction. This is the Congresswoman who's representing Indiana 5. She's fighting for all the American people up on Capitol Hill. Rep Sparks, thanks for coming on the show. Have a great weekend. Thank you for having me. Folks. I'm fighting for a place like Belvedere because I came as a president determined to put an end to this trickle-down economics in this country. I mean, I'm serious. I'm deadly earnest. For too long, the wealthy and big corporations have done just fine. But the rest of us were cut out of that deal. Well, I watched it before. I watched it as a kid. I watched it as a senator. I watched what happened in my community. It changed everything. Why do you think it is that you're trailing Trump in all these swing state polls? Because you don't read the polls out from the There are 10 polls. Eight of them, I'm beating them in those states. Eight of them. You guys only do two. CNN and New York Times. Check it out. Check it out. We'll get you a copy of all those other polls. Okay? You don't believe you're trailing in battleground states? No, I don't. Well, Joe Biden's yelling <laughs> Check again. Check it out. Because <laughs> you don't read the polls. We'll get you copies. We'll get you copies. Sounds like he has the data. Yeah. We got to catch up there with Representative Victoria Sparts. Always great having her on the show. Fiery, mostly peaceful, but not really peaceful either. It sounds like she's coming for scalps. <laughs> a lot of these Congress people, they might not always vote the way we want them to, but you could definitely tell the more and more we have on the show, they're getting sick and tired of this bullshit. They really are. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to play the partisan games anymore. They, they want to do what's best for the country. And I know the American public, especially the America First delegation of the voter constituency, is getting sick and tired of us slow walking everything but 
what can you say? I asked her the questions that everybody wants to hear, everything from border security to, you know, virtue singling people's salaries down to $1, and she gave us answers. So that's the best we could do here on the show. But, you know, you, you talk about Joe Biden. He did not have a great week. In addition to all these swing state polls that have come out over the last two weeks, he had a little bit of a family crisis, I guess you can call it, on Thursday when James Comer finally delivered all of these subpoenas that we've been waiting on. What do you think about that, Noah? Well, it's time for Commander to bite another uh, Secret Service agent then. Mm, it is about that time, ain't it? I was. Pre- I mean, they need to quit flavoring those Secret Service agents' uh, suits with bacon. Or secret documents. Maybe it's a secret document <laughs> searching dog. <laughs> James Comer jumped on Boomer Sweats after he was done signing the subpoenas so Sean Hannity can get everybody riled up in a way only he can do. Let's hear him. James Comer. Mr. Chairman, I know a lot of people have been pushing you and pressuring you to to call or subpoena these witnesses earlier. Now, you had an initial list yesterday. That list has now expanded to how many people that you have subpoenaed? Well, we have uh, almost 10 people subpoenaed. We've requested interviews with another 10, and we still have a few more to go. So at the end of the day, we're going to be asking around two dozen people uh, that have uh, a great deal of knowledge about just exactly what the Bidens were doing and uh, who the people were that were wiring the money from the foreign countries to the Bidens. Uh, We're going to be talking to every one of them and trying to connect the dots with the evidence we've already accumulated, which is primarily bank records. Let's talk about the shell corporations. Let's talk about you've identified 10 Biden family members, if you include President Joe Biden, that have benefited financially with dealings from China, Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine and Romania. Close to 30 million dollars. Do we know anything that they did for this money? Not a thing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, we, all we know is that the Bidens received millions of millions of dollars from foreign nationals and from oligarchs. These were people that uh, I like to say were bad people from bad countries that were in trouble or wanting something. We saw that with the case of Burisma. They were needing a prosecutor fired who was investigating for corruption. Uh, we think a similar thing happened in Romania. We know uh, a lot about why he got three and a half million dollars from Russia. We haven't talked about that yet. And we're learning every day more about the millions of dollars they, they took in from China. So we're looking forward to hearing from people that were involved with all of those different schemes. Tony Bobolinsky is someone that has been on your show, Sean. Uh, we're looking very forward to hearing from him. Well, I think uh, he well, has a great deal uh, of insight as Hunter, to what they Hunter were doing. Biden's lawyer wants to uh, the Justice Department to investigate Tony Bobolinsky. Do you know why? <laughs> I don't know, but I've heard Tony Bobolinsky say, bring it on. I mean, this is another example of witness intimidation. This is what we've dealt with from day one. I mean, if it's not the Biden lawyers in the White House attacking key witnesses, it's it's the Biden lawyers in, in, in the White House attacking me and members of the Oversight Committee for having the audacity to investigate public corruption. I mean, pretty interesting to see how that kind of unrolled this week. And, uh, you know, we called it here on the show a few weeks ago, No, when those photocopies of checks were going around, that if that's what they're leaking to the press right now, it's kind of an incentive to stay tuned. Obviously, there was going to be a lot more. And, you know, for as with kid gloves as they've gone through this Joe Biden impeachment inquiry, 
uh, you know, led by James Comer and, and Jim Jordan and Jason Smith, there wasn't going to be a virtue single of an impeachment like there was for President Trump in things like January 6th in Ukraine. And, you know, you see all these subpoenas that have come out. And uh, I, I did see some of the follow-ups, which was the next day. It says more subpoenas and interview requests were issued today to the Biden family. Investigation by the Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer. These cover three of Hunter Biden's business associates, his NYC gallerist. So we're going to get the uh, real receipts on the penis paintings. Oh, perfect. Yep. A Delaware donor of his father's and two people associated with his uncle Jim Biden. And then it lists the names. So I, I just think, uh, you know, we're, we're getting there. Probably a lot slower than the American public wants it. But the fact of the matter is we're, we're starting to see some stuff. I know one person, great friend of the show, he's going to be joining us on our Tuesday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. In addition to Congressman Mike Collins, Representative Tim Tiffany was on Newsmax yesterday, and he was kind of highlighting some of the stuff that they've already rolled out and why this is different in, in stark contrast to what happened with President Trump. Let's hear him. Hunter, finally been subpoenaed. I say finally because many of us feel like this has been a long time coming. And this happened right after your committee heard nearly seven hours of a closed-door interview with the man that was in charge of the investigation. How significant is this? It's the next step in the process. I mean, I give James Comer a lot of credit here. He's been steady and methodical through this whole process. We've not been like the Democrats where it's ready, fire, aim, and they go straight to impeachment. We're showing the American people how corrupt the Biden family is, and in particular, the big guy, Joe Biden. And uh, the Weiss testimony, I mean, added another brick in that wall that we are producing here in that it reinforces what Gary Shapley and Mr. Ziegler, the IRS whistleblower, said. Once again, it corroborates their information and showing that they've been truthful every step of the way here in regards to the information they've been sharing about the Biden family and all the money that has flowed into the family's coffer. And that's the thing, too. You, you hear some of the leaks that have come out from the closed door testimony that U.S. Attorney General from Delaware, the Hunter Biden special case overseer David Weiss, has produced this week, uh, basically stating that he was, you know, stonewalled. He could corroborate some of the stuff that the whistleblowers had said, but some of the other stuff may have been fabricated or he's lying. And the fact that he wasn't granted all the full powers of a special counsel that special counsels get, especially, you know, in places like California and Washington, D.C., like you wanted to kind of move this investigation to. No, when you see that the subpoenas are finally rolling out and it's not just for art dealers or donors to the Biden campaign, people that were their financiers, but it's actually gone all the way up to Jim and Hunter Biden. Does it kind of make you a little bit more optimistic that we're going to see some kind of a movement on this that might actually lead to a formal impeachment of Joe Biden? Now, again, once there's a formal impeachment, he could still be acquitted in the Senate, which is under Democrat control right now, much like President Trump uh, was when it was flipped the other way. But what do you think? I think this will be the catalyst for him to bow out if anything happens with it whatsoever. Like uh, an impeachment of him would be great. Is it going to change anything? No. But will it be the the nail, the final nail in his coffin? Hopefully. Yeah, I, I also said I could see this shaking out like uh, what happened with President Clinton. Obviously, he was impeached in the House, acquitted in the Senate, allowed to finish his term. But then he was on the back end of his second uh, term in office. So he was going to be leaving the white house anyway for Joe Biden. It's not the case, but like you kind of just mentioned, this could actually lead to Joe Biden having to get out of the race because 
I mean, once you're impeached in the house and everybody knows that you're corrupt, dirty scumbag, like we already. There's only one reason why all this stuff has come out because they were they were doing such a good job of of holding it back. They 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 took their finger out of the dike at this point. They're just like, oh, whatever, fuck it, he's done. You know, in addition to missing some ballot deadlines, it's going to be really hard. But that's the thing. You want to talk about Joe Biden's reelection campaign? Do you ever hear anything about it besides his like pre-prepared stops in like swing states to do speaking events? Uh, President Biden, are you going to uh, plan to re- uh, run run again? Yes, that's all I hear. And when they say how, he says, "Ask CNN and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I'll get you the printouts." Wow. No, it's it, it, it's a joke, and so is he. So. You know, it's great seeing that this is kind of starting to pick up steam and roll along. I saw that Congressman Donald uh, was on Fox Business this morning. He kind of added a little incentive of it. And Hunter Biden crying. Let's hear him. They've now been subpoenaed by Congress. So if they choose to ignore a congressional subpoena, uh, there are legal remedies for that. I, I would not recommend that to Hunter Biden or to Jim Biden or anybody else in the Biden family. Uh, if they believe that what we are saying is false, well, then there's an opportunity to come and, and prove that and actually discuss that, um, whether it's going to be through uh, depositions or whether that's going to be through testimonies to the committee or whether that's going to be in open committee hearings. They can make that case very clearly. So if they have nothing to hide, I don't know what the problem is. I would pay any amount of money that I can afford to lose right now to have Hunter Biden in open committee. And just imagine him behind one of those tables in the same fashion that they dunk on Mayorkas and Merrick Garland and Christopher Ray all the time. It's like those guys are career politicians. Hunter Biden is a career degenerate. I don't think he, he would fold like a friggin' paper card under the pressure. No, they would, they would have him completely prepared and they would literally be waterboarding him <laughs> to have the correct responses. He would be, the most upright crackhead you've ever seen in your entire life doing the Mayorkas answers. Well, I'd, you know, I don't have that data in front of me and, uh, other people did it for me. I don't know. Yeah. You know, obviously I was, I was in distress. I was in distress mentally, physically, emotionally, you know, I was, I was on a bad path. It would just turn into a big fucking wine session. None of it's my fault. You know, I'm an addict, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought people really loved me. And my penis paintings. Well, people do love his penis paintings. Those are going to be worth a fortune just for pop culture alone. Stop being so pessimistic. I, I feel like we've I'm not been... saying it's the new Campbell Soup paintings, but it's getting there. <laughs> you, you ever snort? You ever snort Campbell Soup? You ever snort Skittles? Mm. He is good with the Skittles. Ugh, gross. We're not getting off the rails. What we're doing is having a great podcast here. Wherever you're listening, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio, I know it's a weird time to ask for it, but make sure you're following the show. <laughs> that was an awkward uh, awkward follow-through on that one. Thanks. Make sure it's downloaded into your audible and electronic <laughs> devices as well. Helps us out in every way, shape, or form. And then find us on social media, Twitter, Getter, Truth Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast accounts, follow them, and hit the notification bell. I want to remind everybody, on this big Veterans Day edition of the Steak of Breakfast podcast. We can't forget, in just a few minutes, we're going to be sitting down with one of our favorites, definitely one of Tucky's favorites, Colonel Douglas McGregor, and he's going to give us all the dish on everything that's going on geopolitically, whether it's the uh, soon-to-be-extinguished fire in uh, eastern Ukraine or how things are heating up in the Middle East. So be looking forward to that. It's going to be a great segment. 
Um, Multiverse was confirmed again this week. I know there was the uh, season finale of Loki, and then there's another Marvel movie coming out this weekend, which are all part of the Multiverse saga, according to my children. But uh, you're never going to believe this one, Noah. Lindsey Graham has had enough. No. Of, of giving foreign aid and weaponry to anybody until the southern border is locked down. Mm, okay. When have you ever heard him talk like that? I mean, he doesn't normally talk like that. He certainly doesn't. I think we're giving you... So that's just... that's just. Well, this is what the people want to hear. So I'm just going to say that now. You think he's tired of getting booed? Yes. You think we're giving you a load of crap? Let's hear the real life Mr. Garrison. It's the same administration that is having more illegal immigrants cross our border illegally than all presidents combined. They don't know what they're doing on the border. They don't know what they're doing when it comes to bad guys. If you had Donald Trump as president, we would secure the border tomorrow. People would listen to him in Mexico and other places because they're afraid of him. If he were president of the United States, this stuff with Iran would end. The only thing that works with bad guys is to be strong. Our border is broken. Our policies don't work. It's a matter of time to a bunch of Americans get killed. I will not vote for one dime for any country, including Israel, until we first secure our own border. Oh, scissor me timbers. Listen, I was pretty shocked when I heard that. But after watching some of these shows with my kids, apparently in like parallel universes, there's the exact same version of you, but they're different. They look like you, but they don't sound like you. So I think that might have been like part of the marketing that Disney and Marvel is putting out there for their multiverse saga. They're like, Let's So you're see. saying that there's a there's a Ron and Noah summer that actually have free time and sleep? You know, as I'm watching my wife blast my text messages right now of how long <laughs> I'm taking in the podcast today. Hey, listen. We're getting ready to wrap here, but we do have something else to talk about. Very important. No, I know you saw this yesterday. Mr. Both Sides of the Fence himself, who's getting absolutely stomped in the head-to-head matchup in the general election for the West Virginia senator spot. Joe Manchin announced yesterday he's joining Mitt Romney and bowing out of Congress. He will not be running for re-election next year in a seat that he's held for quite a long time. I mean, good. When you see people like him, I already mentioned Romney. Yeah, Ken Buck. He's tired of people mounting kayak assaults on his fucking houseboat. Yeah, just wait till those Palestinian <laughs> sympathizers start <laughs> throwing rocks at his houseboat. But no, that's the thing. You see all these people in the old guard just like looking at the writing on the wall. If you think the mainstream media isn't trying to repress President Trump and his amazing poll numbers and the fact that he has an honest-to-God chance to win this thing next year... Look at the people who are career politicians that have become millionaires off of working up on Capitol Hill that are bowing out of this because they don't want to have to deal with the absolute bombs that Donald Trump's going to be figuratively dropping up there to blow up the deep state. I know I've talked about it a couple times, but I just saw during the show Dan Scavino put out a post, and it's a statement from the Home Depot founder, Bernie Marcus. This is a lot bigger endorsement than people are taking it for. And I just want you guys to understand like the billions of dollars that this guy is worth and the amount of help he's going to be able to give Donald Trump next year in the election cycle is unparalleled to almost any of the people who have helped president Trump out so far. Here's the statement. I endorsed Donald J. Trump as the nominee of the Republican party and our next president. I endorse him not only because he has the best chance of winning the general election, but because he is the best person to take on and dismantle the administrative state that is strangling America. That's why you see all these congressmen and women bail and ship. The new war in the Middle East will present great challenges for the free world for some time, especially in keeping other terrorist groups 
or nations out of the conflict. This will require a president with judgment, strength, decisiveness, and the courage that Donald Trump displayed in his first term. For instance, when he ordered that strike that killed Iranian terrorist general Qassem Soleimani and dissuaded Russia from invading Ukraine. I think that's a really big, broad statement on some of President Trump's geopolitical victories and the fact that simply because he was president, he carried a big stick, knew when to swing it, but wasn't walking around like Joe Biden right now, like, you know, some special ed kid trying to hit a pinata. Which yeah, there's so many people that they refuse to admit that the only reason the world's in chaos right now is because of this violent upheaval of our of our leadership in this country that has caused just nothing but chaos. Yeah, it's wild, you know, and, and then we've already talked about the other candidates and how they need to, you know, start getting out of this race and, and consolidating their dollars and their support behind President Trump. It's the only way we're going to be able to kind of, you know, get this going in the direction it needs to get going without Donald Trump having to do all the work, which is a trademark of what he does. We're going to be winding down now and jumping in with Colonel McGregor. I've got one more clip. Clay and Buck, oh. who are DeSantis lovers, apparently mm-hmm. got to go to wherever President Trump was staying this week, Mar-a-Lago or Benminster, to do an interview with the him for their radio show. And one of the topics that came up was his relationship with Tucker Carlson and the perspective that he could possibly be someone that Donald Trump might be looking to vet as far as the vice presidency goes. I thought it was a pretty interesting clip. So for our last audio clip of the week, let's hear it. Do you consider Tucker Carlson on your VP list? I want to give you a hypothetical here. You're a big sports fan. You know, like Nick Saban's going to retire at some point. And if you talk to the athletic director at Alabama, he would say he has a list. So would Tucker Carlson be on your list of potential VPs? And how many names might be on that list as you sit and look and survey the political field? Well, first of all, you know, I did my first, uh, you could call it counter-programming, but I, I won't call it that. Don't call but, it that. Uh, Tucker wanted to do an interview during the first debate, and I think you know, because this is what your business is, we broke every record. Monster audience. In history, yeah. I think it just hit over 300 million people, but it was for that evening, over 207 million it then got to 275 within a day or two. And the biggest ever was Oprah's interview with Michael Jackson, which was 125 million. So we almost doubled it. Now, who would have thought that was going to happen? <laughs> the debate, the last debate they had, had the lowest audience in the history of presidential debates. I don't know if you know it. And I think the one tonight is not, it's on tonight. And yeah. I don't even talk about it. Would you consider it's, it's, Tucker, though, that they based on the. I numbers? like Tucker a lot. I guess I would. I think I'd say I would because. He's got great common sense. You know, when they say that you guys are conservative or I'm conservative, it's not that we're conservative. We have common sense. We want to have safe borders. We want to have a wall because walls work. You know what I used to say about walls? I'd say wheels and walls. Everything changes. Uh, The computer that you have in front of you in about a month from now will be totally obsolete. Right now you have the finest equipment in the world. And in about a month from now, that equipment will be obsolete. The only two things for centuries that's not obsolete are wheels and walls, right? <laughs> so, good. No, when you think about yeah. it, right? It yeah. wheels, a wheel will always be a wheel. It's never going to change. And a wall will always be a wall. And, and walls work. work. No, no, walls work. Remember when they were saying they were walls saying don't, don't work. work. Yeah. And Remember and walls? Oh, yeah. Joe Biden's got a wall at his beach house, by the way. Yeah, and he does. And by the way, uh, there are a lot of other walls. Nancy Pelosi has a wall also. And if she didn't have a wall, of course, it didn't work that well yeah. with respect to the husband. But, you know, you want to talk general- to you. of course, he has to mention that. 
So I'm going to put out, this is our top five right now, Noah, top five prospective VP candidates for President Trump. Obviously, we have already thought that Christy Noem is going to get heavily vetted and weighed. A lot of uh, what went into that original pick changed. I think it brought it down to a 50-50 margin with former HUD Secretary Dr. Ben Carson after his endorsement last week. I think those are the top two picks. I'm going to go throw Tucker Carlson in there at three. One of his favorite surrogates, former Democrat and current independent walkaway, Tulsi Gabbard. And then someone whose name keeps coming up in and around Trump world, Nikki Birdbrain Haley is the fifth that rounds out the top five. I don't really think she's going to get much of a sniff. And the longer she begrudgingly stays in this race and wants to play games with uh, DeSanctis and Vivek, uh, the worse it's going to be for her as far as potentially working in the next administration. So, you know, that's kind of the week that was in the news. We got you guys all caught up with everything from the Trump rally and the GOP debate, a little Capitol Hill roundup with a, around some great guests. But don't worry, show's not over. We've got Colonel Douglas McGregor coming in hot right now. But before we get anywhere with him, let's hear from one of our partners. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Battleborn Coffee Roasters. They're law enforcement, family-owned, and they produce some of the best available specialty-grade coffee. That means all those beans have gone through an extensive process to remove all defects. Battleborn researches all their sources, farms, and milling stations to make sure you're not getting any pesticides or chemical fertilizers. Sit back and have a cup of their Borderline Mexico Chiapas blend while you're out sitting on an X or sitting in the office. High-quality coffee from high-quality people. Use promo code STEAK for 20% off your first order. Make sure you go check them out at battleborn.com. Coffee. All right, joining us next on the show today, this Big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. He's a retired U.S. Army colonel, combat veteran, advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He also does a little bit of uh, writing. He's an author, consultant, military TV analyst, great friend of the show. Always excited to be sitting down with Colonel Douglas McGregor. Colonel, welcome back and happy Veterans Day. Hey, thanks very much. Oh, man, we have got so much stuff to talk with you about. You know, we've seen a very strange response to the attack Hamas did on Israel back on October 7th here in the United States, where you see so many people up on Capitol Hill all the way up to the president's office and, and Joe Biden's team continuing to stump for war in Ukraine. You had the presidential debate on Wednesday night where people like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott were saying we needed to go back into Iraq and go into a full-on war with Iran. Doesn't seem like the uh, you know temperature for doing anything of the same or supporting our friends over in Israel is uh, resonating much up on Capitol Hill and and even outside of the Beltway into major cities all across the United States. How are you seeing this whole thing shake out? Well, if we're going to talk about the Israeli thing, I I don't think the Israelis have much to worry about when it comes to Washington. They effectively own it, <laughs> so they they've got uh, whatever they want. Uh, frankly. Mr. Netanyahu exerts more influence and authority in Washington than Mr. Biden does. So they'll get whatever they need. The problem right now is that the Israelis, who were on the receiving end of this horribly barbaric attack, have sought to do more in response than I think they have in the past. I think they decided that this was an opportunity to settle accounts with all of Israel's enemies, potentially, because they could leverage our power. And so Gaza is now a couple of things. First, it's supposed to be an object lesson. In other words, if you go in there and you annihilate not just Hamas, but destroy the entire settlement and either kill or drive the population out, that's a signal to the rest of the region uh, that Israel can do the same to them. Of course, that's not true. Israel can't, uh, but it could with our help and assistance. 
the bad news with object lessons is that sometimes they backfire. Right. And I think this particular object lesson is backfiring. My concern is first and foremost, two things. First of all, that our power and influence in the world not be degraded any further than it already has been by a, a series of stupid decisions on the part of the Biden administration and Congress. The most profoundly stupid one of all, of course, in Ukraine. That war has been lost. The Ukrainian nation is destroyed. Over a half a million Ukrainian soldiers are dead. Uh, they've run out of essentially mobilizable manpower. So that that's one catastrophe. The new catastrophe could be Israel's destruction. And I, I think this is something that is not appreciated or understood right now in the United States or Europe. Uh, the region is different today from what it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, when the Egyptians and the Syrians attacked Israel and the Israelis responded, uh, the attack was a surprise, but it was not on the scale of the Hamas performance. In other words, it was not some ruthless campaign of extermination. Uh, the Egyptians, in fact, crossed the Suez Canal and effectively stopped set up defenses because they knew they could not maneuver effectively against the Israelis. And uh, the result was that the Israelis were defeated in their attempts to dislodge them until finally, towards the end of the conflict, they managed to break through and cross the Suez Canal. At the time, we had Nixon as president, and Nixon was happy to see the Israelis succeed, but he also wasn't going to allow the Israelis to go so far as to provoke a regional war. Right. And he knew that if he did not stop the Israelis... The Russians would probably come in, uh, at that time the Soviets, to rescue the Egyptians uh, from destruction. So he said stop. The Israelis eventually halted, pulled back across the Suez, and we know the rest of the story. We got a peace agreement out of it that has lasted for 50 years and, and done very well, frankly. Uh, that's all absent right now. You have no one who is essentially saying to the Israelis, you, you've probably done enough at this point. If you continue to kill more of these unarmed civilians, regardless of however much you may hate them and they may hate you, you risk today bringing together an alliance of virtually everyone in the region against you. And most important, Turkey, which at the time in 1973 was very secular and allied strongly with the West and pro-Israel, is not secular any longer. It's very much an Islamist state. And they can put 2 million men into the field in a month. They have a substantial Navy. They have a substantial arsenal of missiles. And everyone is saying, oh, well, the Turks will never do anything. Well, the answer is no, the Turks will act. But they're waiting for us to act to restrain the Israelis before they do anything. And now we have something that we've never seen before. And that is the Turks and the Iranians are coordinating and right. cooperating. Yep. You had the Iranian foreign minister show up in Turkey and he was greeted like the second coming, whereas Mr. Blinken was treated like the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> True story. And so now he was then ushered in after his discussions with the foreign minister to see none other than President Erdogan. And since then, President Erdogan has met with the leader of Iran. The leader of Iran has now flown to Riyadh to see the crown prince to talk about the, the issue with the Saudis. What I'm trying to point out is that all of these states are more capable than they were 50 years ago. They have more technology at their disposal. They're better organized, better led than they were 50 years ago. And 
they're quite capable of coordinating their actions to really destroy Israel. The Israelis are no longer in a position to essentially act in a vacuum against what were previously incapable opponents. So this is a very dangerous situation. And my own view is that the president of the United States has an obligation to save Israel from itself. And they're doing nothing, regardless of what they say publicly, they're doing nothing. They don't know what to do. They've essentially opened the cage door and let out the tiger, the tiger being Netanyahu. The tiger has decided that's it. We're putting an end to this once and for all. We're sympathetic to the tiger's position, but the problem is the tiger is ruthless, ravenous, and is killing everything in its path. That's unacceptable. We have gone into places like Bosnia and attacked the Serbs for ethnic cleansing. We've condemned people in Southeast Asia and Africa and worked against them because of ethnic cleansing. All of a sudden now we're witnessing exactly the same thing and we are doing nothing. And people say, well, what could you do? Well, I'll tell you exactly what you could do. And this is what Nixon would do. He would say, either you stop or we withdraw our forces and suspend aid. That will get Mr. Netanyahu's attention immediately. And, you know, even though the Israelis are all horrified about what has happened, there are lots of Israelis who recognize that this is too much too far. And it's dangerous for Israel now. The last thing we as an American state and republic want is a regional war in the Middle East. Let's talk about what happens if Biden and his friends continue to do nothing. Well, in addition to ending up in a warlike stance against Israel and us in the region, and, and believe me, the Iranians and the Turks can do a lot of damage to us, including our forces at sea, they'll shut down the Straits of Hormuz. Egypt will close the Suez Canal. Now, if you're prepared to pay $200 for a barrel of oil, then by all means, continue doing what you're doing. But I don't think we're prepared for that. And given the damage that these fools in Washington have done to our energy sector, $200 for a barrel of oil is absolutely catastrophic. So our financial position would collapse. We're now service, our debt servicing payment is now over a trillion dollars a year. It's just jumped within the last couple of months. Two months ago, it was equal to the cost of maintaining our national defense establishment. Now it's about 1.2, 1.3 trillion. This is insane. We can't afford this. And then, of course, against the backdrop of what? Stupidity in Ukraine. We provoked Russia. Russia was not the evil one as, as cast in, in this phony political drama in Washington. The Ukrainian regime, with our backing, had been killing Russians in eastern Ukraine for eight years, over 14,000 of them. The Russians objected. We went through the Minsk Agreement travesty. Nothing happened. Nothing was done. In fact, things got worse. We armed the Ukrainians to the teeth and said, boys, go at it. We're with you all the way. And you can't lose because you have the scientific, industrial, and military power of the United States behind you. Well, didn't work out. They're crushed. And today, Russia is something it was not two years ago. It's incredibly strong and powerful. It's one of the leading military powers in the world. I wouldn't want to go to war with them at this point. They're far better positioned to fight us than we are to fight them. 
So all we have with this administration over the last two years is an unbroken record of catastrophic failure. And if this is not stopped in the Middle East, we could witness the end of Israel. Israel's not that large, gentlemen. It's it's not that big. There are a little over 6 million Jews inside Israel. You have 1.1 million Arabs inside that country. And there are millions of Palestinians everywhere, as we are discovering, including 1 million in Turkey. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's happy to have them, but it presents a problem. So the idea that you can go in now and essentially flatten Gaza in a scorched earth campaign and get away with it is no longer viable. No, it's the truth. And, you know, I do want to point out before we get into any of those things that I want to touch on uh, with you, you made a lot of excellent points, Colonel, is that, you know, last time you were on the show was a couple weeks ago, you were the first person and were 100% accurate about Turkey's getting involved in everything. Not only was, you know, the the foreign minister of Iran visiting Turkey at the time, but Edron made a speech like a day or two after you came on the show and said Turkey's ready to drive their military across the Middle East and and straight up to the doorstep of Israel. He went out in front of a million people that came to hear him speak at a rally and said exactly the same thing that you had talked about on the show just a few days before. And, you know, the the American media barely even wants to cover it. And then when you look at, like, the logistics of things, of of Turkey being a NATO country and just what would happen if they get into a hot war with Israel, who supposedly is our, you know, strongest and longstanding foreign ally, especially in the Middle East. I, I don't know how we would resolve this. You talk about regional war. This thing could get worldwide and in just one second could go all the way from Russia all the way through, you know, uh, Israel, and it would be just an absolute disaster for the planet. No, I, I think you're right. Uh, I think the larger issue here is that Mr. Erdogan doesn't really want to go to war. No. Nobody in the region does. But the problem is when you're racking up these kinds of losses from day to day, and you see now an estimated 4,500 children out of over 11,000 killed in Gaza, you, you begin you begin to say, wait a minute, how can I, as a Muslim Turk, and remember that Mr. Erdogan is the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood yep. in the Middle East as well as in North America, how can I stand by and do nothing? And let's not kid ourselves. The Shiites are not exactly enthusiastic about the Sunnis. But even the Shiite Muslims are saying, you know, we can't stand by and watch this happen. But the difference between today and 50 years ago is profound. 50 years ago, they couldn't do much about it. And they controlled the populations in a way that prevented them from really knowing very much. Mm-hmm. In other words, you enraging the Turkish population 50 years ago was a very difficult process. We didn't have the kind of media that we have today. Didn't have the access to information that pours in. So, you know, again, I want to see Israel survive. And that's next to providing, or let's put it this way, next to preserving our power and influence in the region, Israel's survival is paramount. We cannot allow these people, regardless of what happened on the 7th of October, to potentially commit suicide. And that's what I'm afraid of right now. And I'm I'm so sick of this because just as the war in Ukraine could have been stopped in two weeks, yep. had the president stood up and said, wait a minute, we don't want this war. No one wants a war in Europe. We've got to sit down. We've got to negotiate. We could have given up this fantasy of dragging the most corrupt country, one of the most corrupt countries in the world, and certainly the worst in Europe, into NATO. That was never necessary. We're not threatened. 
Europe isn't threatened by Russia. That's a joke. The Russians want to do business with Europe. You know, that that's what they're all about. And we did the opposite. We could have stopped this thing. We could have come to an agreement. And how many people would be alive today? And what would the map look like? Right. Well, perhaps they could have granted autonomy to the two Russian provinces and promised to respect the Russians and give them equality before the law, which is really what he wanted, and then recognize that Crimea, which was always Russian anyway, is Russian. Then we'll all go home and, you know, eat borscht and drink vodka and get on with life. That didn't happen. Instead, we got this cataclysmic war. And now you have a similar circumstance. You killed over 11,000 Arabs, okay? You've flattened northern Gaza. You've made your point. It's time to stop, sit down, and we'll negotiate some sort of solution. And again, it may not be permanent. It may not be what everybody wants. But the objective is to stop the bloodshed, stop the fighting long enough for people to think beyond their emotions. Because right now, everything's emotion. Very. No, you you make some excellent points there. And the last thing I want to touch with you on, Colonel, because you're always looking at this miles down the road. I mean, you look at the Biden regime right now. There's nobody in there with any foreign policy experience, with any kind of success level. You want to talk about Jake Sullivan has been wrong on everything since he was, you know, mopping floors for Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, Tory Newland, John Kerry, Verily Jarrett, every single person that's involved in the Biden foreign policy, the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs, they're all failures, you know, and, and they're all virtue hires and they're all DEI hires and they have no interest except promoting, you know, what they are or what they look like or what they stand for rather than getting to any kind of peace in any situation going around on the planet right now. I don't think we're going to be able to get it out of the United States unless, you know, this this continues to go on all the way through the next year's election, which it certainly can't. So the fact of the matter is, is that strategy wise, who do you see stepping in or what entity or nation or anyone on the planet right now could step in and kind of start to put out these fires that are starting to get out of control? And if we don't do something about it soon, they're going to wind up connecting. Well, we certainly don't need somebody like John Bolton, whose solution is for the United States to nuke everyone in the Middle East. Yep. Because I can guarantee you, if somebody were to do something like that, that would be the end of Israel. You know, the, the Turks can get nuclear weapons. The Iranians can get them. If they want them, they'll come from Pakistan straight into Turkey overnight. So you know, this sort of this sort of military solution to every problem that presents itself has got to go away. In other words, we have to understand that threats of military power, bullying, and so forth is not the answer. We have to treat people the way we would want to be treated. In other words, you have to respect other people's culture, their identity, what they are. You know, I sometimes I think because we Americans don't seem to value our own identity, culture, and existence, we don't care about anybody else's. I mean, if we cared, there would be millions of people in the streets demanding the borders close. Sure. There would be millions of Americans in the streets demanding that the laws be enforced, that the Soros attorneys general should hang from the local tree and the criminals should be executed. That's what would happen if people here in the United States care. But, you know, we have a lot of fat, dumb and happy Americans. As long as the check shows up in the mail, they can sit in the Barca lounge and down some beer. They don't seem to care. The problem is that this stuff is beginning to get closer to home. Yeah. And we've got to wake up soon. So whoever goes in there has got to do a couple of things. First of all, we have no army today. It's down to roughly 450,000. Nobody wants to join it. 
In fact, uh, it was amazing just this week, it was mentioned in the Pentagon that, well, we'd really like to recruit some white men. <laughs> I Gosh. saw those videos. Gosh, why why would you want to do that? I mean, who are these white men who fought at Normandy, who fought at Okinawa, who fought in Korea, who fought in Vietnam, everywhere? I mean, why would you need them? Why? I thought we wanted to get rid of too many white pilots. Right. That was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as the chief of staff of the Air Force said, that's our problem, too many white pilots. God, I'm glad the guys at, at Midway showed up. Mm. You know, the point I'm trying to make is that we have we have nothing that makes sense in defense. That has to be stripped down to the bare studs. We have to overhaul it, start over. You've got 44 four-star generals on active duty. We need maybe 10. Yep. This is a joke. We look like a banana republic in Latin America. In fact, they're beginning to look better than us. So you've got to get somebody in there who says, all right, stop. What are we doing all over the world right now? Do we really need to be all over the world right now? And one of the problems we've got with these Europeans is that they're, they're essentially happy to be dependent upon us in perpetuity for everything. And now the Germans have finally recognized, gosh, I guess we need to build an army. You know, all these people have got to wake up. We can't fix them. We can only fix ourselves. So whoever comes in, it's a clean slate, and don't hire anybody to work in the new administration who lives inside the Beltway. Facts. That's you can't it. do that. No, it's the truth. And, you know, you've given our listenership such a lot to take in and digest, Colonel, which is great when you come on the show because you're such a troll of information and, and stuff that's literally up to the minute. I'm sure most of the stuff we talked about today will unfold in the next couple of days, if not weeks, and, and it leaves our listenership anticipating your next time on the show. We're obviously going to be live linking OurCountryOurChoice.com and your website in our show description today and all of your social media links. But we thank you very much for coming and taking some time with us and uh, sharing with our listenership. This is the retired U.S. Army Colonel, one of the best military minds out there, Colonel Douglas McGregor. Thanks for coming on the show and have a great weekend. Hey, thank you. Bye-bye. And we've come to the end of another week here on the Steak for Breakfast podcast. What do you think, Noah? Outstanding. Glad I was able to make it even remotely. Yeah, I'm not liking the fact that you're not here in studio with me, but I do like the fact that you joined me here on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the now over 290 other editions of the show, make sure you're subscribed to us across every downloadable podcasting platform. In addition, follow us on social media, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Guys, I know it's heading into the weekend, but don't worry. We'll be back on Tuesday. We've got an absolute heater. We're going to have Congressman Mike Collins and Tom Tiffany joining us and two people making their steak for breakfast debut, Nevada congressional candidate Elizabeth Hagelin and Arizona's finest, Miss Caroline Wren, will be here. So on behalf of the pod team, I'm Roan. Noah? Later. Thanks for listening. Have a great Veterans Day and rest of the weekend. Be sure to take care. Want to hear a story? Sure. My sister had a cat, and the cat birthed a litter of kittens. Must have been 30 of them. And there was this one little runt, this little sweet little little engine that could run, who could, you know, wanted to get up there and couldn't really get access to the to the to the to the uh, teat. Teat. Dead. What have you? I went in and just simply, you know, just 
into a little saucer and uh, then took the saucer and fed it to Geppetto. That's what I named him, Geppetto. I, I, I had no idea you could milk a cat. Oh, yeah, you can milk anything with nipples. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me?